Hello and welcome to Two Pros, One Noob, the podcast in which two experts are joined by a complete newcomer. On this episode, we begin the Harry Potter series because, yes, our noob will be reading all seven books for the very first time. I can promise he has never read them before and barely knows the difference between Hogwarts and a hippogriff. If you too have never read the books and perhaps fancy reading along with our noob, make sure you avoid the two sections with the pros alone. That's me and Dom. Um, And they'll be signposted through the episode. So, without further ado, here is Two Pros, One Noob, Harry Potter edition. Joining me today as my pro is a man that has read Harry Potter at least 12 times. So he says to me, is Mr. Don Bailey. Welcome, Don. Evening, Matthew. Evening. Evening. Giving away the time of day of this record. Um, Yeah, so am I right? How many times have you read Harry Potter? 12 may be fair. 12 is fair. Although there's good bits, aren't there? There's good bits that you keep going back to that definitely higher than 12. And the earlier ones you've read more because obviously the rereads and you like you you were there at the start. So you started reading these when they were what, three or four would come out. I think from when I started, I had one, two, three and four kind of ready to go. So you could just sort of plow through those and then it becomes the year's waiting game, doesn't it? Each time. Indeed. No queuing in the street though for release night. <laughs> Not like me. No, missed out, mate. Actually, I think I needed that on one. Um, and welcoming our noob is a man that has never read Harry Potter. Well, we'll we'll come to that actually. Um, and he certainly doesn't. Really we can have that. that. We can have that for all your noobs on this. A little boo as they get entered into the arena. <laughs> Booing the noobs. I feel like the noobs won't get booed on many other things, but Harry Potter is something that they should get booed on. Yeah. Um, mm. Is Steve. Hello, interesting. Very intimidating environment, this, for me. I mean, I know both of you very well, as the listeners may not realise. And when you know people that well, you think you pretty much know the basics, don't you? And then there's this one big pillar of their lives that just exists and it's always been there and they talk about it and it's really deep and complicated and I've got no idea. And that's quite scary, starting to uncover that. So this is a very intimidating forum for me. Do you think that? Do you think we've discussed it a lot over the years? Um, oh, we'll get to it. We'll oh, get to fine. it. Fine. Cool. All right. Well, that's the introductions out of the way. Um, but let's move to introductory questions. So my very first question to you is, why have you never read Harry Potter? You're a 28-year-old man, English, therefore pretty much given for a lot of people that they have. Not saying that everyone has, obviously, because there's plenty that haven't. Mm. But what are your reasons? I spent most of my childhood reading like Sun Tzu's Art of War and other things like that. So it was hard for me to, no, obviously, obviously not. Sun, I, um, I was thinking, uh, is, that, is that anime? <laughs> yeah, like for Sun me, it was, it was, as a seven-year-old, it was never quite highbrow enough for me. No, I, um, <laughs> you know what it is? It's the classic, it's the classic, like, um, I think you get this a little bit now with Netflix, but probably not as much which is the missing the boat thing. And I, and I do hate it when people say this about Netflix series because it's like, well, it's still there and you can still watch it. So like, it's not an excuse. But in this instance, I feel like it's so deep and it's so big and people love it so much that I think as we were growing up, I think it became increasingly inaccessible to me, which is an excuse. Like you can't, you should, of course, really just say, just do it, bite the bullet. I know you're a bit late, but get on with it. But then, especially when you're growing up and you're a bit younger, you know, when you dig in a little bit as well, and you're like, well, 
I've missed it now and they all know it and they're going to dig me out if I start it as well. So I feel like I like missed it. But what, what, what this did make me think when we were doing this is I don't know why I missed it. Like that bit is a bit of a mystery to me. Like I'm not sure at the time why there was never an incentive to go there, but there obviously wasn't. So there Well, I mean, there was big gaps between some of the books coming out. You had plenty of time to just say, you know what, this year I'm going to get my head down, one, two, three, four, read them. And then by the time the fifth one comes out, um, Order of Phoenix, do we get to call them their proper name in front of him? Or yeah, does, he, yeah, know, does he know? Yeah, yeah, not um, me, mate, so. yeah exactly. <laughs> no idea. One blank face there. Um, but you know, you've got a year, you've got a year and a half of, you know, what? I could easily read them all in this time, read them twice, three times for all I care. And then by the time the fifth one comes out, I'm up to speed. I know what's going mm. on and I'm back in the game. No, you are right. I mean, I, like I'm, I've been nervous about doing this because I think it is exposing in that sense, as in there isn't really a good reason as to why I never did that. And it makes me think that I had a... Less literal, uh, sorry, less literary childhood than I should have, but it just it just never happened. It just didn't is it happen. A, is it a topic that you would vo- avoid at parties or something if people were bringing it up and stuff? Because you don't. Well, want I that. would know because I go to loads of them with you two. <laughs> so yeah, yes. what parties are you going to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, these two losers are the ones I go to, and it comes up all the time. So. Uh, or in any social situation at work, I don't know, the first day at a new job, I, I don't know, anything that has been uh, you do the old, you, you, you hear someone say a wheezy and you've got the old, got a, a just a text or something, and you just have a little scroll through, don't you? You've got a little phone call you've got to attend to, and then you come back, and then hopefully yeah. everyone's moved on, and then you just don't have to, you don't have to worry about navigating that. So I've, I've mastered the art of, like, ducking out, doing a, is it a Dutch exit? Is that what they call it when you... I think it's every nationality going French, Irish, all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I've mastered that art whenever I hear big H come up and I'm I'm straight out. Big H. All right. Well, so the next question really is what do you think of it? Um, and is it kind of that part of your judgment of it and why you didn't want to do it? Because I wouldn't say that Harry Potter's the coolest thing in the world. Although I guess so many people it's so many people do have read it that it's not like the biggest loser thing either. But what are your thoughts of it? Yeah, kids' book, isn't it? Basically, <laughs> what I think about every, it. Every party I go to, that's what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> no, see, this is where I have to. Um, I feel like I've been playing this act now for nearly three decades of like kids' book and move on and remove myself. But the actual, I think, reality of this question is, too many people that I like or love, um, and that I love the same things as them love harry potter and like at some point you've got to get to the point where you're thinking something's not adding up here and i've got to the conclusion i genuinely can say it must be good like it can only be good at this point because i think i've done that you know you do that like social filtration some people's judgments you trust and i'm at the point now where like i mean this conversation is is a good example of that like there are so many other things that we i think would collectively be lined up with and this is true of so many other people I think I know, and they just all love it. So, like, my perception of it, honestly, is that I want to just mock it and be like, nah, I missed the boat. But, like, I, I think the joke is on me. I do sort of accept that because it's just too too revered. I think you've made um, two quite good points there. The first one, kids' book, we could all see it coming. Um, and the reality is it probably is in the first couple of books, especially the first movie. It's, it's whimsical. It's magical. It's... Um, it is a child's book and 
I mean, that is the introduction to the world that you get and you can create these preconceived ideas on what the whole series is going to be like before you've even moved past book one or two or film one and two for those people that haven't um, mm. read the book. And the second point about uh, sort of this social filtration of is it going to be good because the people I know and trust all rave about it or talk about it. I think with people as well that don't even buy into the whole fantasy or sci-fi side of it as well, yet this is the one that stands out and this is the one that I have personally gone far deeper into and actually um, cared for over the past however many years now. And Matt, I think you're the same. I've never heard you talk about anything else Game of Thrones related or the Philip Pullman like um, Subtle Knife series, anything like that, even sci-fi. So yeah. this one kind of stands out head and shoulders above the rest in terms of what I've seen. I've got written as a note here and follow up to that. The people I know who love this do not love fantasy. I've literally written it down because I was thinking about this and it's like sometimes you can just be like, well, that's not really my thing. But mm. I've never heard either of you ever entertain the idea of Star Trek, Star Wars, Game of thrones Oof. anything along Oof. those lines so yeah you're right i think it is a validation of it because it's so isolated not that we're completely slagging off those things just probably not not all completely for us um i would say that that is also a product of her ability to cherry pick from all the different worlds of fantasy and sort of just take the best bits <laughs> Right, well then, let's figure out then, Steve, what you know about Harry Potter already. Oh, I've um, got some questions. Because, you know, you've had that little stab years and years ago at reading it. You've, you've, it's just like one of the biggest things in popular culture. Um, what characters do you know, first of all? Yeah, this is... So I've, I've got, just made a word map. And I've literally... I've started with characters, but then I've just gone anything, any yeah. word that I associate with Harry Potter is on this page. All right. You've got your man, H. We'll take that as a given. H. Ron... <laughs> Sticking with that from steps, yeah. H. Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger, and then even before I got to the fourth one, hilarious story, right? <laughs> as I've gone through each of these characters, I'm going, I know they've got family, and I know that like there's some links here. So one of the ones I've got actually later is Ginny Weasley. I know that that's a thing, right? So as I've done that, I've gone, the others have got family, right? And I've put Hermione Granger, and I've written next to it, <laughs> it's stuck in my head, and I've written Martin Granger. And I'm looking at it, and I'm going, I'm sure that's right. I'm certain there's a Martin Granger in this. I'm certain. And I did this about, and about 30 minutes later, he played left-back for Birmingham about 15 years ago. <laughs> so not on the list. So you can take that one out, and I've crossed for it. Um, right, back to where we were. Hagrid. Draco Malfoy. This is not an answer, but I put Malfoy's brother. I think he's very prominent. I just don't know what his name is. Doesn't exist. Just say doesn't exist. All yeah. right. Smash that one. He can oh. join Martin Granger then in the top corner. No spoilers, but yeah, yeah, there you go. QPR. Yeah. All right. Martin Granger and Malfoy's brother. That, they're out. That's on the, the eighth book, Harry Potter and Malfoy. But there was there was a certainty of. I don't know who he is, but he plays a massive role. He's one of the big <laughs> ones. Oh, massive no. role. Oh, dear. Uh, all the big ones. All right, well, that's that embarrassing. That's really me. <laughs> that's embarrassing. That okay. Dumbledore, Voldemort, and then I've put, and it took the, the, these two pieces, to, there was a 20-minute gap. It started as the owl. And then it became Hedwig after about 20 minutes, which Lovely. I think is right. Yeah. But then I thought, is that like a Nordic footballer again? But I'm assuming that's okay. Nope, um, Snape, Ginny Weasley, as I mentioned. And then I've got I've got 
Dobby, and then the other one I've got, which I mean, you can choose if you allow it. It's not a full name, but I'm absolutely certain there's a bloke called Neville in it. I'm certain of that. There is a Neville, yeah. Okay. Well, obviously, I know I know they all go to Hogwarts. I know they all play Quidditch, and I know that they get put into houses. And the houses, the good one, I think, is Gryffindor. Is we know that's the good one, and the evil one, which I think is something to do with Snape, is Slytherin. Then yeah. one of them. I'm pretty sure it's called, I, I don't know this, and this could be another very embarrassing moment, but I think one of them is called Hufflepuff. Yeah, you're good. All right. This was one of my questions. Um, now, there's a fourth one. Of the houses. I've got no idea what the fourth one is. I, I genuinely no idea. Like, I'll probably know it when you say it, but it's not on top of my mind. We won't say it now. You can, and then uh, the only uh, last two things I've got written on this page is <laughs> three quarters platform, is one thing I've put down here. And Wingardium Leviosa is the other one. I've put well, down. hey, another one. There you go, that's my seen, list of Harry Potter. And you could have seen a lot of these on just Twitter over 15 years and TV shows and all sorts, right? Like these just filter in, filter through. Now that we're on the topic of this, and I think it's good to confess everything that I've been exposed to, I have a feeling that maybe I had like a PlayStation 1 game, maybe about Harry Potter and maybe some like the houses yeah. thing has come through from that I wouldn't have played it much but there might be a little bit in that as well perhaps um I mean it all seems so basic doesn't it that it's it's, it's, it's tough to comprehend like what it must be like to rack your brain and, it is quite a relief that he knows as yeah. little as he does I think well the character yeah it's what well, yeah it makes you perfect for you really are a complete noob into this aren't you you really don't have anywhere to go um so I think a lot of the things that you said there actually do relate more to the first book as well and some things we're introduced to really early on in Harry Potter. So um, mm, sure. over the first few chapters, I think all of these things that have come to your mind kind of pop up again. And again, probably not a coincidence. It's the stuff that was when we were younger. It was in the first film. Um, you say you have had a PlayStation game that comes out when we're at about the correct age to want to play that game at the same time. What do you think then might happen in the series as a whole what kind of ideas do you have that makes you think is the reason we kind of love it and what where the plot might go so i give you like a chronology yeah. so like can, this is can where I, I ask think... can i ask one question before you get onto that do you know how it ends no good genuinely no idea how it ends i would say the, the ending is quite nuanced that it would be difficult without knowing a lot of other stuff to know what the ending or understand the ending if you, even if you'd ever heard it yeah, but you can always turn those things into a simplistic binary. I suppose. One or two things. Yeah, you? I guess. But... I know what you're getting at, actually. Yeah, yeah. Right. In terms of what I think is going to happen, like, bear in mind, I have no idea about the depth of what is to come. Like, I've got to break it down into some sort of, like, piecemeal starting points, and then it becomes a little bit hazy. So what I think will happen, and what I kind of think I half, I kind of know what happens early doors, they obviously all start school. Harry obviously finds out he's a wizard. You're a wizard, Harry. That's a thing, right? So I know that's going to happen. He's obviously slowly going to discover his powers as, as this is going to uncover and emerge. And then there's going to be this really interesting subplot with regards to finding the strength of his powers and how amazing that is, but also some of the downsides of the powers and it can bring destruction and it can bring rivalry and chaos and carnage as well. So that's obviously going to be like a thing. I'm, I'm sure about that. He's obviously going to like, find mentors 
and he's going to find enemies quite early. I think I know that like Hagrid is in the mental character category draco and his brother are in the enemies category. <laughs> <laughs> it's like is how it's broadly structured from what i remember and so that like that bit i'm like all of those things anyone can guess that's probably true other than <laughs> i'm definitely after writing that, fiction about draco's brother after this that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> after that i really genuinely just don't know what i suspect what what my like um going in feeling and from what i hear people talk about is i, I expect there to be this will sound ridiculous but like there's obviously going to be a lot of magic like that that's going to happen and like they're going to discover more and more i would think over time and i suspect like the powers of the magic will become more and more apparent and powerful i think there's going to be a lot of fighting it always feels to me like there's quite a, there's a big um part of the plot which just from what like i hear that feels like there's a lot of enemies going on right now like whether that's from houses or whether that's families maybe is like a part of that as well or some sort of enemy and then I think you've also got this like coming of age part of it which is the fact that like they all start as little kids essentially and they must all end at least as young adults I'm assuming I did think like well maybe they like because it's a world of magic maybe they like just remain children forever and it's Peter Pan but like, I don't think so I feel like part of this is also about like the growing up of these children as well and and everything that comes with growing up i do love like this unspoiled points of view you have where you can't rule anything out <laughs> yeah. it could be peter pan the only uh, thing i can rule out at this point is that the the malfoy sibling dynasty takes over and wins the whole like thing <laughs> the only thing i know is not coming i guess this sort of ties into why you think people really love it then do you think that in the things you've described there's enough there then to hold all the all these friends of yours that do love it there's there's going to be some just brilliant writing or just you know what do you think it is that it takes hold of us so much i mean that is a very difficult question to answer but just sort of no like this question i'm gonna direct my answer basically it's based upon you too right so i can't speak for the wider population but i can speak for like the people that i know well and the thing that i think knowing you that will be the reason you love it is the depth i think it's all about the depth and, and like, because I know what you are both like in other elements of life, be it like music, be it sport, and you'll go deep and then really love being in deep and like soaking it all in because there's so many layers and there's so many pieces to explore and you want to know more and become the expert of it. So I feel like one of the reasons that you two probably both love it is like, there's this whole big and complex world but you can kind of make it your own and you can give it your own kind of definition so I, I suspect that you love it for that I think also realistically this is by no means to say that you could only love it if you were of our age because that's of course not true lots of old people lots of young people love it but there probably is also an element for people certainly of our kind of age or maybe like millennials and, and gen x's where it was so culturally relevant. Like I was, I was reflecting earlier about like how I missed it. And I was thinking about what you mentioned, like people queuing to get the books, people queuing at cinemas, the board games, the PlayStation games, like it was so immersive at a time where a lot of people were basically also growing up. So I suspect that there's also a huge element of like nostalgia attached to it. And the fact that like, you can kind of, it's one of those things you can probably track your life and your upbringing a little bit alongside the books in the same way that you can do that with albums from certain artists etc yeah i mean i think you're right i think um rowland has created like an amazing world that you can completely 
immerse herself in and believe that everything is um, is real. And ultimately, she has to set sort of what the boundaries are because magic is uh, is something that no, like isn't real. So we don't actually know what the, sort of the limits could be. But she has to create these boundaries and then create a story that kind of works within it, but is also believable at the same time. And as um, I think you're right, like as you move up through the layers um, and as you get more complex and you get more in depth, um, it still has to be believable at that point and it has to tie in. You can't just start throwing in pieces that are um, that haven't had any sort of relevance or association to kind of what's been set beforehand. Otherwise the whole thing falls down at that point, doesn't it? And you think, well, I don't know what the rules are anymore. Um, you're making this up as you go along but because everything throughout the whole series just begins to tie together so nicely i think that's what can really sort of pull you in and um sort of keep you coming back finding out little uh, finding out more and more little pieces of the puzzle as you go through it and read it again um on this fourth fifth seventh uh, sixth seventh time twelfth in your case or, Do you know when i think about like you two talking about it like, I never know what's going on, but this is how, like, the conversation, I think, goes. It's never like, oh, do you remember when that thing happened in Harry Potter? It's always like, you've got that, and it's like, yeah, yeah but then you've also got, like, but then that comes in, and then, like, but then there's that thing, and it's always, like, this, like, build upon a build upon a build. Like, th that's what I hear. I never know what the words are, but, like, I always hear this, like, but then this, and then this. It always feels like a set of building blocks to me when I listen to it. Do you have um, any negative preconceptions? Is there anything you are you know you've sp you've spoken positively about how you think your friends enjoy it and but do you think there's a small part of you that doubts whether you could get on board in the same way when i hear you talk about them i always and i might be wrong on this i feel like the early books you've all got respect for like you all respect the early books but they're not they're not your they're not like your gold but they, <laughs> they they've got their role they have to be there you've got to respect them you've got to respect the role they play but they're not your gold. And so I feel like one of the fears I've got is that I'm going to read Philosopher's Stone and I'll probably be like, oh yeah, I like it. But like, based on this conversation, I'm now thinking this will be the life-changing moment that's going to come to me. And I don't think that is going to happen. So that's like a fear that I've got because it feels like there's a lot of scene setting to be done. And like, I'm talking to people who have read it 12 times. So like, I feel like that's a, a bit of a concern. Um, yeah, I wonder how it's going to play out with you reading this stuff as an adult for the first time. Yeah, because that's um, exactly, we were lucky enough to be able to do that world building as kids. So it's so, ma the magic is wonderful to us. Well, it's a kid's book, isn't it? So. <laughs> but they, they do start out and there's just a tone change. I won't tell you when it comes, but um, there's, a, there's a huge shift at some point. <laughs> so... Bear in mind, I know so little, like, the things go, like, they all hit, like, puberty, like, it becomes, like, <laughs> like I'm wondering, like, the tone. Kind of. <laughs> well, it's, the, it's um, the series of two halves, isn't it? That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and you can just see by the thickness of the books as well that, you know, you can't write big books that thick with shit not happening, can you? That was... That's funny you say that, because one of the things that I do think about Harry Potter, I know, know nothing about it, I always remember being like, oh, Goblet of Fire, that's, that's, that's <laughs> lengthy now, isn't it? That's why you well, bought it. Because we got it the other day, and... Hang on a minute. I've got it. It's right here. I remember. It, it must be a hardback then, if you got it years and years ago. First edition hardback. There you yeah. go. Thanks for coming. It's not worth anything. I've looked it's it up. Goblet of Fire, is it? It's all the feeling. It's not Goblet of Fire. Which <laughs> 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 is even yellow. Better. You've seen the yellow on the front, haven't you? I've seen the yellow, and this man has got no <laughs> idea. And I've just spotted it's the yellow. Order of the Phoenix. I can't believe what I've done. Let's talk book one. Put that one away. Book one, 
you've kind of outlined what you expect, but yeah, what where do you think the story might go other than just him finding out he's a wizard? Some sort of um like protagonist, antagonist that's gonna have to be structured early, I would think. Because if you get to that level of depth, like those foundations, it can't just be here's three lovely little cute children and we're gonna assign obviously the first half is gonna be we're gonna assign them a house, lovely. But then I would expect something's going to ramp up. And, and the ramp up, I think, is going to... I definitely think that Draco's got a role to play in this book. Like, I know, with that slick back, I've seen what he looks like, <laughs> with that blonde slick back, I know that he's got an evil role to play. And I feel like that will come through in book one, because I think you have to establish that. Because I know they're too, there's not going to be romance, right? Because they're too young. So, like, typically I'm thinking, what would your normal plot entail? And that can't be there. So then I think you go naturally, you go to like this idea of enemies, as I said, like protagonists. And so I think that there's going to be a fair bit of that going on. The next time we hear from you, you're going to have read Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And we'll also play in your chapter diary, which will be around sort of five or six minutes, uh, just a sort of 30 seconds on every few chapters. So that's to come next. He's gone. So, what do you think? How do you think he's going to react to this book? Let's talk. Well, no, no let's talk about the world as a whole. We, we kind of have always thought that he probably hasn't read it because he just thinks it's a kid's book and he's too cool for it. And I think that still remains to be the case a little bit. And I think that he might think in this book, this is just not for me. There's a chance. I'm worried it could happen early on, but he does. I'm. He does seem genuine in like the excitement. To Which I didn't expect. No, and I've um, sort of pushed a few of those buttons to say, but you're not really though, are you? You're not really that keen. Um, and every time he's batted it away with like a straight bat and um, it seems like he can't wait to get going and sort of understands that it's not going to be um, something that you jump into and actually it's the very best from day dot and you have to sort of, earn that gratification that comes with the later books at the same time a bit like any kind of tv series really i'll always say the first series or the second series can never be the best because you need to set the scene you need to build the characters and anything that's worth its salt the best series will come four or five in or so who do you think that he's going to like enjoy character wise because i guess we're quite similar in some of the people that we probably like throughout the series but let's think of like book one do you think he He's not going to like take a shine into like Malfoy or anyone like that, is he? Is I think he's going to fucking love Draco Malfoy. <laughs> because he's going to have that slightly older brain, isn't he? That he's not, you know, you're going to, you can enjoy the villain a bit more probably when you're older. Yeah, 100%. You don't take it at such, um, is, is face value the right, the right way of saying it? He loves it. There's a bit of a, um, cut, cut and thrust to it. Yeah, there's a bloke in there who's trying to mix things up, who's trying to get in Harry's head and just play the, play the bad guy. Yeah, I think Severus Snape, obviously. Uh, I mean, we didn't really say names. That was one of the guys he mentioned, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So well, he's that's... aware. And obviously he's one of the, the greatest characters to have come out of any book series ever. And I think he'll really enjoy the the really won't he, is he, isn't he sort of aspect to all of it. Definitely, that. throughout the whole thing, yeah. Um, so what did you think of as well, like his theories of Draco Malfoy's brother? Where's <laughs> that come from? Where has that come from? Never. I mean, so let's speculate. Who could he mean? Does he mean Lucius? Does he mean Crab and Goyle? I, I literally, that's why it threw me so much because there's no basis for it. And it sounds like a fan fiction. It probably is. 
doesn't even have a sister. There is a little cursed child, like, sort of insinuation going on there, just by having, like, uh, one of the main evil characters' relative kind of come into it. I know that we, I, I particularly slag off book one a lot, because when I say slag off, I just don't enjoy the reread that much of it. I mean, I, I, when I was probably rereading a bit younger, I kind of would sometimes skip book one and two a bit. Um, but now I do do it properly. If I do do a reread like I did in the summer, just because, you know, you kind of have to, and it had been a while this time, but it is a more of a kid's book. But for some reason, I think he'll still, he'll still just enjoy like the mystery of the book and all that kind of thing. Like it's still a good plot where you're going to try and figure out what's happening. Um, I don't doubt that it's not something that he could enjoy from the beginning at the same time. And you said about skipping book one and two there. I mean, book one is obviously the, the scene setter and book two, probably my least favourite book of a lot, but we know just how essential it is with the, the plot and the yeah. diary and everything that comes with it. Um, I, what I really like on the reread of book one is actually the first couple of chapters, because I think it's one of those things that's just hidden with little Easter eggs of things that characters like Sirius Black getting a mention and, and just... You know, the idea of Vernon Dursley like driving around and hearing words and there's like even like a couple of uh, wizards maybe mentioned. Is it Dillius Diggle he mentioned or someone like that? Yeah, Dedalus Diggle. Down in Kent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're just these little nuggets for the reading. The Deluminator gets an outing as well, doesn't it? As a putter outer. Yeah, I know. Graceful. I don't understand how that happened. They'll rename that one day. Yeah. It, it's a putter outer uh, for a couple of books. I think it's still a putter outer in like book three or four, which is bizarre. Um, and then obviously there's the Deluminator when in book six, isn't it? When uh, he gets out. But um, yeah, she finally came up with a good name for that. Um, I'm, I'm excited. Wonderful. Very soon he'll be able to tell us his books in preference order. Just say the seven numbers and I know exactly what he means. All right, well, do it, the Commandant. Give me the seven. Off-Blood Prince. Yeah. I think it's the absolute cornerstone to everything that happens and ties together um, ties together everything they've been building towards. I mean, the seventh one is obviously amazing because it's the conclusion, but it's different, isn't it? They're not at the school, and it's, it's kind of the whole series sets itself up so that it can have the seventh book. Um, so, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm going six, four, seven, five, three, one, two. And I'm basically exactly the same. I think I always flip between one and two, which is like a bit pointless because they're six and seven. Although I maybe prefer to, but it's so filled with plot holes. So um, yeah. maybe one, and one is the first one. But yeah, I'm completely in agreement. I think four is like that underrated one. I think it's a lot of people's favorites. Um, it's an amazing book, just and it's the game changer. Six is perfection. Uh, and I just have a soft spot for five as well. I would still put it fourth, but yeah, it's just, there's just so much world building in four, in five, sorry, which I really love. Right, well, without further ado, here is Steve's chapter reviews. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, chapters one and two. We're off. So page, page two, I'm thinking, here we go. Cat reading a map, is it? kids book just like i'd always assumed but actually uh low, low so much context in the early chapters i was very surprised that the early introduction of so many big hitters voldemort dumbledore mcgonagall hagrid uh lots of early context i uh, am 
already questioning one of my pre-reading assumptions of a lack of romance. Lots of intense flirting going on between McGonagall and uh, Dumbledore sat on that ledge. Uh, so let's see how that one unfolds over time. And Harry, the, the child prodigy really, already sort of establishing his powers. My hopes for the next two chapters is that um, he can use them to uh, see the fast removal of uh, Dudley Dursley, the spoilt brat. Chapters three and four, the letters from no one and the keeper of the keys. Lots happening. feel like some of the fundamentals of Harry Potter are coming to the fore, early doors. You're a wizard, Harry. Didn't expect that as early as this. Let's come straight in from Hagrid. Hogwarts we're establishing. I now know the roles of uh, Dumbledore and McGonagall. I've not ruled out the potential relationship based on the headmaster, headmistress. That's, that dynamic's often been seen before. And Voldemort, he's on the run. I don't think I was aware of that. Hagrid, great bloke, great beard. And I was thinking, I was so pleased that, you know, gameskeepers, they don't tend to have the, the best reputation. And I was thinking, what a, what a nice bloke makes a change. Last line of the last chapter is that he was expelled from Hogwarts. So I'll, I'll, I'll reserve judgment a bit on that. Just finished chapters five, Diagon Alley and six, journey from platform nine and three quarters my first discovery being that diagon alley is in fact an alley and not a valley and is you know a glorious magical boot fair as opposed to some grand mountain range as i had previously been embarrassingly referring to it as over the weekend big character arrivals we've got we've got ron we've got all the weasleys can't keep up with them we've got hermione of course we've got draco coming in late starting to think that maybe Draco's brother was in fact Goyle in my mind, but I'll, I'll still hold fire on that one. I feel like this was the first real look behind the magical curtain when it really started to come to life. You got the Leaky Cauldron, you got Gringotts, the big magical hat and garden, platform nine and three quarters. I can already kind of feel um, myself moving into that magic territory, the the early feelings that one day I maybe want to go and visit Harry Potter world with both of you which will probably be a very apt conclusion to this podcast. Chapters 7 and 8, Sorting Hat and the Potions Master. Sorting Hat feels a little bit like uh, the Hogwarts FA Cup third round draw really doesn't it? No surprises though, the hat always uh, always gets it right and then I feel like a, a lot of the darker elements of Harry Potter starting to come through across these two chapters. First introduction to Snape, Malfoy is starting to, to have his way a little bit more. So things are becoming a bit more sinister. And then we've got the mystery of the package. Chapters 9, 10 and 11, Midnight Jewel, Halloween and Quidditch. Lots happening now. I feel like we're starting to see Harry come into his own and, and starting to be a bit of a noble wizard as well. I'm surprised a little bit by how powerful he is so early. I thought there might be some sort of struggle to get to that point, but not yet, it seems. But also being quite noble as well, acted upon instincts of what he believes to be right, which is quite cool to see. Quidditch, big developments. Quite nice to finally learn the rules, having watched people play it in fields at school and university and wonder what was going on. Actually, a really great game. Um, and then the dark side as well, coming on strong. We've got first real introduction to monsters with the troll and the three-headed dog. And then Snape having his wicked way at the end there. But the big question remains is, what is the package? 
chapters 12 and 13, The Mirror of Erised and Nicholas Flamel. Uh, I'd quite like to see The Mirror of Erised. I don't know what I'd see, but I'm quite fascinated to find out. I'm quite fascinated to see what you would both see as well. Maybe that'll be on our trip to Harry Potter world at the end of all of this. Loads happening, things are getting more sinister. I can't unsee now. Dom, you said before that you reckon I see Alan Rickman when I think of Snape, but I only really see Jacob Rees-Mogg now in my head. Um, And then we've discovered the Philosopher's Stone uh, and some of the origin behind it. So things are getting heated. Chapters 14 and 15, Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback and the Forbidden Forest. Definitely the most tense part of the book to date. I think I'm going to be ploughing through to the end now from this point. Harry, absolute schoolboy error, literally, with the uh, invisible cloak, which obviously leads them to the Forbidden Forest. John Joe Shelby himself, there he is, hiding in the forest. No wonder Newcastle's form has been so bad. And Harry gets away, but clearly Dumbledore's got Harry's back. So I sense that the real power battle that we're going to have to work out over time is Dumbledore and Harry versus John Joe and Reese Mogg. I am finished. Through the trapdoor and the man with two faces, the final two chapters. I ended up powering through and doing the last four in one, which for someone who has neglected the book for the last 25 years is um, is quite funny, really. Um, I loved it. And I'm kind of itching now just to to move on to the next. But the last few chapters were, were great. Through the trapdoor was like being in a final level of like Crash Bandicoot or something, working through um, the various obstacles. Um, and then the man with two faces, Quirrell, took me by surprise. I didn't see that coming. I was less surprised to see Voldemort existing in this out of body kind of um, existence. But I didn't see Quirrell coming, which led to a very tense finale. But I loved it. I think the knitting of all the subplots in towards the end as well was really uh, cool. Like the mirror of Erised coming back in, all the references back to like Snape's interactions, particularly at the Quidditch match, uh, was really really nicely done. I still don't trust Snape. There's something there that's definitely not as it seems still. So I'm looking forward to see it at develop. I also find it mad that he's got to now go back to Muggle world. But I actually kind of, on reflection, really like this dynamic. I'm quite interested to see how that plays out over time. Well, that was quick. You just, you finished that in five seconds flat. No, um, we are back. Uh, I can promise you that it has been a few weeks since Steve uh, finished reading the very first Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, so after, we've just heard that your voice notes there. Um which, you know, went into some detail. We got some reaction of, of what, how you felt when you read it. So we'll kind of call you up, call you up, uh, pull you up on some of those points as we go through. But before we get into the story, um, how are you feeling now you've read it? Are you, uh, you've lost your Harry Potter virginity. Was it everything you wanted or everything you expected? Or do you hate it and felt like you were dragged through this podcast tonight? No, I've got really mixed feelings, but they're all like positive mixed feelings so I've firstly like I really loved the book and like we'll talk about it in like loads of detail but Hooray! I reckon I've, I reckon I uh finished it maybe a little bit quicker than you and probably I expected because like I, beforehand when I was maybe a bit more like 
apprehensive I thought oh maybe it will drag a bit but by the end I was powering it through which I think you know says a lot about the enjoyment of it I'm finding the process though like a really interesting one because I'm conscious of the concept of this whole podcast and what we're doing is I'm with two pros and so what I feel like I've done I've got like the bit between my teeth like I've opened the door and now I sort of from the first bit, what I can tell you is I now see the layers. And whilst I don't understand the layers because I've only read it once and I've not watched the films and there's other books to come, like I know it's there. So now I can kind of feel that it's going to unfold in front of me. And in a way, like I feel it strangely at times a little less settled than I even did before because before I had nothing. So before it was just so easy to be like, now I know nothing. And now I'm quite like nervous even talking now because I feel like I should feel like I know it all. But now I just know that I've literally turned a page quite literally and I've got so many more to go so I love the experience but now I feel like you've caught me right in the middle of something which is going to become quite big in, in my life maybe time oh, wow. to uh time to get your 10,000 hours in mate I can see mm. that though it's like you've um opened Pandora's box and all these thoughts aren't quite in order I'm guessing at the moment and they don't quite appear linear in the way that you think about them and everything is still to come but you've sort of seen a little slice of the action um and I've liked the slice I want more of the cake. I've got to say, like, I bought book two is bought. We're ready to go straight away. I bought that when I had a few chapters left. So I'm in. I'm fully in. Yeah. A and convert. I'm... We have a convert. <laughs> Hooray. Hooray. Success already. We don't even need to do the rest of them. We've just got him to read Harry Potter. That's all we wanted. Um, so just the way this is going to work, we're going to kind of go through the story and ask you everything about all the characters and everything, but we don't want to give the game away. You know, we're going to you talk about it being this in-depth and so many layers that is true but i guess we can't really go into all of those details with you in the room and share that with you because you're going to have to discover that all for yourself so we're going to talk to you on on a surface level and we're not testing you so we're not saying can you remember this um but we kind of want to hear your reactions as you read it because obviously we didn't hear everything we didn't hear the cogs going around in your brain as you read it. And we heard the initial reactions, but we're now we, we want to hear exactly what you thought at the time and what you think now, obviously, with the context of the final ending of the book and everything. Um, so let's get into it then. Um, early Doors, for, uh, the, the book opens from the Dursley's perspective. And I think this is quite significant, actually. Um, and I know Dom would agree with me here. There's very few... And I feel like I can say this and reveal this. So I apologize if people are screaming out saying, you know, get frustrated if I ever start to reveal things to you. But this is probably something that's OK to say. Um, there's not many occasions where the story isn't told from Harry's perspective. This is one of them. Um, I won't say any more of when or when, when uh, other points where it is or isn't. But we see the story here through Vernon Dursley's eyes. So your initial thought on that was that something that you were surprised you or did you just not really think much of it because it was you know you're just reading the first chapter of a new book you don't really consider that actually the book is going to be through Harry's eyes for the rest of it well I definitely didn't consider the perspective of whose eyes it was coming from that didn't cross my mind but one of the reasons it didn't cross my mind was because I was really shocked and I think this is a theme we'll talk about throughout the whole book at how integrated muggle world was in Harry Potter so like I, I don't know how much this came through in the preview we did I can't necessarily remember what I said but I think in my mind I thought we were going to be fantasy from the get-go so like I think in my head we're starting in Hogwarts and we'll as I said we'll go on to talk about like how the real world as a concept in Harry Potter was such a shock to West Ham Dean couldn't believe it like I could not <laughs> believe that like that was a thing so 
that was really what really took my surprise. So I wasn't thinking about the perspectives, but definitely like the fact that this was actually rooted in real life was a real surprise to me. And I think that's what makes Harry so believable and relatable because in a fantasy story, because he sort of is one of us because he represents what could happen, especially if you're a child reading it. You know, one day if you're an eight-year-old, nine-year-old reading this book, you could get your letter from Hogwarts. It could happen. Um, and, and I guess this story starts in that place with the Dursley's eyes through their um, through the muggle world. It's no surprise to me why millions and millions of children who read this become so gripped because you do constantly peg it to your own life and this idea that maybe this does exist in our real <laughs> in our actual lives and maybe this is all happening somewhere and I think that that was a real surprise to me. So we'll talk about the Dursleys then you know you commented actually in your one of your voice notes Dudley Dursley, as you pronounce it, which I found quite Dudley Dursley, uh, <laughs> spoiled brat, which which completely agree with, and I think that is obviously something that's very striking to lots of people when they read this. Just I think clear to everyone how awful the Dursleys are. Um, yeah, how but, many birthday presents is too many birthday presents? Would you say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But last year, last year, um, and. So did, was there any sympathy at all, do you think? that If you now think about it, if you take yourself out of it, what do you think of the Dursleys now? What is your analysis? Are they just pure evil? You've got you've been obviously excited to see them again in book two. So um, what do you make of them? I wouldn't say I have any sympathy because, I mean, like, I mean, they are literally violating, like, basic human rights. Like, you can't stick someone underneath the stairs and, like, barely feed them. So, like, I have no sympathy in the sense that the way, whatever they feel about this world, the way they are treating this person is horrific. So it's hard to really see them in a positive light. But, it, of course, like, it definitely goes through your mind that, um, and, again, I think you do, like, play it a little bit into your own life, don't you? Which is, like, if you came to me and said that, like, you were heading off because you're going to go to like your like whatever you would call it your like special school and you'll be back in a few months and you'll have certain powers and be able to do things I would have no time for you like at all I probably wouldn't like consign you to a, as I said like a solitude but I would of course have no time for you um so like I get it and I think that's actually a really nice dynamic and I think it really like adds an element of like that exclusivity of the wizarding world comes through but i don't really sympathize with them because they are generally pretty uh behavior is pretty horrific it's absolutely mind-blowing to me that he's going back there by the way like that yeah. obviously is where i've literally just come fresh from and like the i like it shocked me enough that muggle world particularly existed let alone to think that people interact with wizarding world and then go back out again was a was mad to me there was one interesting thought that I had, which was the fact that you're reading it as someone that comes in with some prior knowledge, which, I mean, there's probably plenty of people that have read it with that similar view. Um, but obviously, so does Vernon Dursley when he's driving around in his car. And he can sort of remember all these details about the wizarding world that he heard from Petunia, who obviously is um, sister with Lily. Sorry, I almost didn't want to reveal that there as if that wasn't something you could know. It's like trying to keep on top of all the spoilers. It's not a spoiler that Harry is, in fact, their nephew. Um, no, that's Harry 101. You're fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it must have been just kind of, I don't know. Yeah, there was some sort of poetry in the fact that you were on, on a level with Vernon just seeing all these little 
suggestions of magic at the same time as him while he was just trying to think about his drills. Up next in in the story, um, we move to the magic world because we see Dumbledore, we see McGonagall, uh, and you mentioned this in your in your voice note. What were your initial impressions at this time when we when we sort of were introduced to to McGonagall and Dumbledore? Do you remember? I remember Dumbledore, and maybe I'm post rationalizing a bit, but just thinking sound bloke, like you you know that he's a good noble fella. He's very balanced as well, and I, I'll come on to talk about this further when we talk about then how he manages the different houses and the different people within Hogwarts. But I think there's something interesting in the extent to which he is such a beacon of the wizard world and, and appears to want to find some level of neutrality, but at the same time clearly has a um, a very close or direct relationship with Harry. So I think you get the impression that there is a um, direct link between the two is kind of the, the early impression that I remember um, and, and that he's some sort of protector for him. I mean, yeah, he's, he's the guy that's like running the show, isn't it? And I think that becomes really clear kind of straight on, uh, sorry, straight on, straight away that he's the man that's completely like in control of everything, um, mm. clearly well respected by important people um, that get introduced early on, uh, but also has this sense of sort of a bigger picture and everything that's going on um, that other people can't necessarily see. So he's sort of keeping things in control at the same time whilst adding a layer of like comfort to everyone else. Yeah, I really thought of him as being all-knowing. And, like, I thought it was quite telling that, like, I, I feel like I felt like he was always trying to kind of hold something together, which I think maybe speaks to the stuff that he also knows as well. And, and like, uh, uh, there's maybe a reason that he's trying to, to be like that. But, yeah, I definitely see him as being all-knowing. Funny you say that. So he was all-knowing, um, or in interesting you say that. At the very start, McGonagall starts asking him a lot of questions. Um, and you're, as a reader, um, well, we already know that Harry is, is alive. Um, and you're someone that's coming to the story which kind of has a bit of um, prior knowledge to sort of the fact that Harry will have a major rival throughout this series. Um, so she starts asking him what happened when Voldemort tried to kill Harry? Why didn't it work? Why did he want to kill Harry? What happened to him when the curse failed? How did Harry survive? We're already finding, we're already hearing a lot of serious questions here. How did you interpret his, his responses at the time? Probably linked to what I mentioned previously, feel like he tries to take a position of relative balance. And I, I can't actually fully remember what all of his reactions are. So I could be getting yeah. slightly, I could be slightly like misremembering, but like I, I always felt with him, the impression I was always getting was that he had a desire to kind of keep things balanced or to keep things controlled and therefore not leaning too much into committal in terms of this is why this is happening, this is the reasons for it, but kind of acknowledging it and acknowledging like what's good and what's not good and what's good and what's evil, but not as such kind of taking sides. Like I found like there was a really kind of cute balance, I guess, that he struck with Harry, where I did feel like he was constantly protecting him, but I also didn't see him as being like a tribal character where he's like, I fall on this side and this shouldn't have happened. That was kind of how I think I perceived that. Mm. Have I like misremembered though any of the response? Because I can't also. No, no, no. Very. Remember. I just a couple of things there you said. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, let's move on. I was going to say before we move on. Yeah. Uh, 
can we just say, and we won't do this for every chapter, but because it's the first one, what a banging chapter. Just like, what a good introduction. That It's jam-packed. Yeah. There's so much going on. Um, so if you've read it like three or four times, like the number of Easter eggs and little clues in there, just from the very, very get-go, are um, kind of stunning. And I sort of get the impression, Steve, that you'd noticed that and appreciated that without obviously knowing what they are. Yeah, at same, definitely. At the same time. But even if you don't go back and like reread um, the whole series again really quickly, maybe just go back and read the opening chapter when it's all done and just see sort of what you missed in that first 10, 15 minutes. Okay, let's move on to Hagrid because the story obviously moves to the point where Harry is taken away to, to the island by the Dursleys who are trying to escape the letters. Um, and then Hagrid bangs the door down and basically reveals to him, you're a wizard, Harry. Um, one of the things you said was that you predicted him to be a mentor. This was in you know the, the initial pre-pod. Um, you, you were quite right about that, I think it's fair to say. I think throughout certainly the initial stages, Hagrid is, is, a, more, is a mentor to Harry. Maybe that um, relationship evolves to more, I would say, brotherly, um, because Hagrid isn't necessarily the all-knowing all to be respected guys he's also you know he's a bit oafish makes mistakes um so they kind of run rings around him a little bit um but yeah well how did you see the development of this relationship throughout the book well i think that's a good example there of like where you i know you mentioned before like because you have this knowledge like it just comes but i would actually say that what you just mentioned in terms of hagrid's character i obviously agree with you but this was a massive shock to me because i went in and yes, I thought he was going to be a mentor, but I think as part of that, in my head, he was unbelievably wise, like a big, wise guy <laughs> who like knows the wizarding world. He's come to take guy. Harry. So like even when he first meets him, I'm thinking this is the arrival of a man who's been sent to get him because he is the trustworthy, wise person who knows everything and will take him under his wing. <laughs> and then you realise really quickly, so careless. The bloke's just all over the shop, like <laughs> saying the wrong things, forgetting things, like like growing, uh, bringing up dragons in his little house. It's like, this was a massive shock to me. I thought it was going to be really, really wise. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that was a real surprise. Like I really thought he was going to, um, I think, I, I thought he would be really respected and like someone that they constantly looked up to. And I realised he's a bit of a joke character quite early. But a lovable joke. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think there's the potential for something to turn a little bit and I don't think turning um I don't want to say like it out of ill intentions because that's easy to say like I don't I don't I don't know if that's the case but there's something related to like the carelessness the fact that he's also a little bit like um easily led maybe like mm. I would argue mm. from some of like the actions if you take the dragon and other things like there's something in that which I think can definitely definitely cause problems and probably quite a big problem. So we'll have to see how that goes. But that again is such a shock because if you think of my going in position that he's just this wise, noble head, I'm like, oh, I, I leave it thinking there could be a few dodgy things to come. Uh, you've got him right for most of that. But yeah, the wise, uh, noble head, we don't have another Albus Dumbledore on our hands, just the one mm. of them. Um, but mentalist, isn't he? Like big moleskin coat, <laughs> uh, pink umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> knocking a door down oh, what a great I do like it there's like a feeling of familiarity with an R Hagrid fat like, an R, like, right, R. Harry. Harry. yeah, yeah. <laughs> every time he popped in I quite enjoyed it 
it's nice. Yeah, it, you'd want him on your side going to war. And it's Hagrid, who Harry's got no friends in the world, and the very, his very first friend in the world happens to be this massive giant. He's like, I'll bowl around with him all day long. It'd be great. Um, he's the great, he's the great um, anti Dursley, isn't he? As he pops in, like, you don't have someone very reasoned coming in explaining what's going on, just this big bloke knocking a door down, scaring the crap <laughs> out of everyone. Um, yeah. yeah. You, you actually said that. Um, in one point in your voice notes that you reserved judgment on why he was expelled uh, from Hogwarts. So there was, there you were given even then that little kind of suggestion that there's more to come from Hagrid. So I would just say, watch this space on that mm. one. Um, Cause mm. yeah, you're quite right. Um, but I don't want to give anything else away, but you know, there's, there's more to come from that. Um, there was a really important conversation actually with Hagrid early on, which is um, I think during their, sequence in Diagon Alley or just before they go into uh, Viola's books. Diagon Valley? <laughs> we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Um, which is Hagrid telling him about Voldemort and, and what happened to his parents. Um, what did you think about this conversation at the time? Um, did you accept everything he had to say now i don't know if you remember is it something that you recall now very clearly was it something that at the time you thought this is a big deal or was it just something you sort of felt like accepted you accepted it and, and moved on uh i don't know if i thought about whether i accepted the words and i think that's because i was quite surprised that the topic was present i think in my mind um and that when you hear people talk about Harry Potter, I think that I had thought of Voldemort as being a character that would be really built towards, or like there's some sort of crescendo leading to Voldemort, which probably not, not that he wouldn't be mentioned, but like certainly you wouldn't see him until something relatively conclusive. So I was firstly surprised that he was spoken about so early. And I was definitely surprised and we'll come to this, that he also was present within this book. I actually don't think I really thought he would have a presence in the book at all. Okay. I don't think I don't think I really thought too much about critically about what Hagrid was saying, really, to be honest, at that point. Hmm. Okay. What you didn't listen to the wise guy and everything he had to say, no? <laughs> <laughs> I well, I think I just assumed it all to be true, to be completely yeah. honest. I didn't yeah. really, I didn't question That's otherwise. Yeah, 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 no. And I'm not saying that it isn't either, by the way. I'm just I'm just questioning your thoughts at the time. The next character, the significant character that we kind of meet is is Draco Malfoy, although we don't know initially that it is Draco Malfoy. He's just the, the pale uh, is it pointed nosed or is it pointed chin boy? Pointed chin. Yeah. What were your initial thoughts then? Do you do you remember? Did you remember? Or did you? I suppose at the time you must have recalled the the meeting with uh, the boy that he kind of he slagged off Hagrid, didn't he? Basically. Yeah. Well, I know that Dom said that he thought I might love Malfoy. Um, and. Yeah, maybe. Like there's yeah. like an element of like chief wrestler, um, isn't he? That's what. Yeah, exactly. Like I. I Definitely reflect on it now at the end of the book, knowing he hasn't yet done anything um, horrendous. And I can take that kind of quite, um, yeah, like lighthearted approach to his badness where I'm just like, oh, he's just a little shit. But like, um, he's got a bit of swagger about him as well. And so I don't hate him at this point. But what I do think about Malfoy is I think he's like the modern manifestation of something bigger. And like, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but like, this vertical of Malfoy into Snape, 
under the umbrella of Slytherin related to Voldemort is something like, and I've, there'll be things that I've got wrong in there and there'll be things that are more and less complex than that. But like, to me, he is some sort of like modern youthful manifestation of some dark pillar that is underpinned there. And like those characters that I mentioned, some of them might, might come in and out of that some way down the line. But like, I do think he, like, and all the references to like family and the houses that they're in, like, I think he is a, um, somehow a representation of um, that, that dark pillar. I don't think I've got enough yet to know exactly what it is, but I, I absolutely see him in that territory. I don't, I'm not sat here now looking at him thinking, oh, he's just a bit of like a rustler, but like, he'll probably grow out of it. Like, I see him as being a part of something quite dark still, I think. Mm. What, what do you make of Slytherin, by the way? Because you touched on it there. Like, they're, you know, we're, we're talking about a school. So how evil can a house in a school be? But yet you've got these early impressions from someone like Hagrid, one about a witch or was a dingle bad one Slytherin. Like, you just, there's always, this is prejudice that almost builds really early on towards Slytherin. Do you think that they are pure evil? Or do you think that there's a way more nuance to it? I don't know if I'd say that, like, people in Slytherin by default are pure evil but I think there's something way bigger than it being a schoolhouse that is represented by Slytherin and that could be bloodline or that could be some sort of cursing that has taken place historically but like I think somehow what those houses represent is far far more than just a schoolhouse and it relates to the people who have gone through those systems or perhaps founded those systems and the bloodline that sits behind it. So I definitely see the, the, the houses as being, a, again, like a representation of um, good, evil, and maybe a little bit in between as well. But that doesn't necessarily mean like all the people that are in there are inherently bad. Um, there's just one quote that I wanted to pull out from Draco, which is, he says on the train, you don't want to go making friends with the wrong sort um, when he's talking to Harry. And he says, I can help you there. Um, although I'm not sure if the I can help you there is a film quote now, if I remember it. But anyway, um, what do you think he meant by that? He don't want you to go making friends of the wrong sort. You kind of touched on it in what you said, but just specifically, what do you think he might mean? I think I, the two uh, like themes that come to mind is is like bloodline or cursing. Like they're the two areas, and I think that I know we're going to talk about this as well, but like the the creation of the wands is quite interesting, has an interesting role to play there as well. And I think that the wrong kind, his reference there is probably a clearly defined group. I just don't know what is defining them, but I think it's gonna be like one of those kind of um, sort of ancestral uh, uh, like drivers, if you know what I mean. It all seems like a, sorry, it just it all seems like a pretty big flaw, really, doesn't it, from the school to allow a house like this to exist <laughs> and let these prejudice build and build. And at 11-year-olds, uh, telling 11-year-olds, yeah, you're going to go over there and be associated with all these people that hate everyone else in the school and have created a terrible rep, um, reputation. But this is why I also think a little bit, um, something we were saying earlier is like, I don't know if that was necessarily planned or if that is just a product of, things that have happened and then there's a bit of a Dumbledore role there so like where I'm saying about I see him as being a little bit all-knowing and overseeing like I'm starting to look at it as like because you're right like he's not going to accept like 
there's just a core of really evil people here like he has the power to ensure that that didn't exist as well so like i i also question um yeah what how intentional was this um evil or the creation of this evil or is it something that has just become a reality um well move, you mentioned the ones there we'll move on to quite an important scene in the series um and actually is one of jk rowling's favorite uh, scenes that she wrote um which is basically when he goes to buy his wand from mr olivander and we've you know you've been it's been revealed to you what happened with voldemort and harry and there's just a quote here which i'll read out which is i remember every wand i've sold I've ever sold, Mr. Potter, every single wand. It so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather, just one other. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother, why its brother gave you that scar. Did this... Do you remember that? Yeah. Is that, <laughs> is that a quote that you remember? I don't know if I remember the quote, but like, what was really like... Um very over from that scene was the idea that a wand what's the what's the right phrase the person the one picks the person yeah is the wizard yeah that's that's the one that whole idea is obviously uh the takeout really from this scene it links to a lot of these ideas or, or these i guess concepts that could be related to someone's history or someone's family history or what they were uh you know what they were where they were created to be is something that's kind of been predefined or historically defined just to, to talk about this part of the book i feel like there was a bit of a moment for like a new reader and a new someone new to harry potter there was a real pull in for me at the moment of like diagon valley and uh, <laughs> um and what followed in those pre hogwarts but like post pub scenes like there was something so like um, attractive, I think, about like the, the starting of the creation of this world. And I really, really enjoyed this part of the book. And I think we'll talk about that later when, when we talk about the world that's been created. So I've got lots of thoughts on that. But this was a part of the book that I really found myself starting to like get, get the yeah. gears turning. There's a lot of characters now that we can kind of meet in short succession because of the train journey. Um, just quickly want to mention Neville because you did bring him up in your little mind map of Harry Potter characters. Um, you know, he's not got a starring role necessarily in this book, but I don't know, a significant role enough. He obviously uh, wins the House Cup on his own with his 10 points at the end as well. What um, What did you? What were your thoughts on Neville throughout the book? Big Nev, yeah. Clumsy, clumsy kid, really, for <laughs> most of it. In my head, like, I saw him as being a bit like, uh, like an Augustus Gloop is, like, how I imagined him, like, <laughs> operating or navigating in a very, like... Uh, clumsy way really like i think you feel massive empathy with him like a very well-intentioned is the like impression you get and obviously kind of wants to be feels like he wants to be a part of whatever's going on even if other people don't necessarily want him to be so i think you often he's like a, a very likable character i think as well but yeah clearly very clumsy i think that um he's he is heavily involved in all of pretty much all of the big stuff that happens even though he isn't really a star role at all in this book and I think that's quite interesting I think the other thing to like that I started to think about a lot as well with these characters is like how young they are as well and also like the of course how much they're going to change like I mean you see a lot of Neville's 11 year old Neville's around but like they can often uh 
you know, they'll often come through into something very different. So I think you have to be a little bit careful with all of the kids, I think. Like you even, as you said, you even see those sort of micro developments through, I think you really see that with Hermione, who we'll speak about in a minute, like quite a, a development of character. So I think it's hard to pass total judgment on any of the characters because of their age. But yeah, Neville, pretty clumsy thus far. Dom, take us into Ron. Well, hey, here we go. Can't believe... Neville, Ollivander, Malfoy, Hagrid, all had mentions before Big Ronald Weasley and uh, the start of the Holy Trinity. Yeah, no, um, it's a big moment, isn't it? There he is, just bowling through Zone 1 London um, in Big King's Cross train station and uh, a little redhead family comes swanning past. And yeah, this is sort of the beginning of it, isn't it? Of him uh, finding, uh, well, I know he's met Hagrid, but like real friends and people he's beginning to um, sort of connect with his age and sort of on his level um, in the world. And yeah, we'll let Steve sort of go into his comments, but just for my view, it's just such an interesting like friendship that they have where um, Harry's kind of this celebrity that doesn't know anything about the world, meeting someone who knows everything about the world, but isn't really known kind of at all. And so they're as fascinated by each other um, as yeah the other one is and so it's just such an interesting sort of dynamic that they have when they're sat there in that um, carriage in the very first meeting. I found Ron quite a hard one to place in this book actually because like he, he I think he displays quite a lot of like different behaviours really like I think at times he's quite humble in the context of the fact that he's in like a I guess quite a high achieving family with his brothers and yet he's kind of aspiring to be like them they also seem like they're also quite a nice family though his mum's lovely love her mrs weasley but then you've also got the fact that like he's a little bit short-tempered as well like he's obviously digging out hermione quite a lot he gets a little bit irritated like by um sort of her kind of do good nature as well i think he wants to win a lot like um he's clearly a spy as i said like aspiring but in the shadow of his, his family as well um so i i found it like run a little bit of a quite hard to place I think in these um early early stages to be to be honest and and, and what and so you mentioned his sort of thoughts on Hermione as well that for you was Hermione immediately like you liked her what despite her she you know she could be a bit of a goody two-shoes and a bit of a know-it-all or with, was your sympathy with her just because like she's 11 let her off yeah, I don't think I instantly like her, though. Too much of a do-gooder. Like, I think early stages, she's a nightmare, to be quite honest. Like, just sometimes you just want to chill out. Like, so you agree with Ron, but you also don't agree with him calling her out for it? Well, I don't, like, I, I don't, um, I don't think Ron, Ron was, like, wrong to call her out on it. Um, yeah, I think with Ron, it was just, like, he, he kind of shows a little bit of everything. Like, he's quite a nice guy, quite easily irritated. Like, I just couldn't really place him. Like, he's a little bit of everything. What I really thought was that I thought she was one of the characters who developed in this book far more than some of the others. And I think, like, what is clear early with Hermione is that she's obviously very morally sound and, like, wants to act upon that at all times. But what I think develops really nicely is that she actually, um, like, an element of, like, nobleness and kind of bravery comes through more so, where then she makes her own definition of acting in a morally sound way, which, like, I think at the start of the book, it just risks doing things by the law constantly, because that's how she thinks and operates. But then, of course, when you're getting towards, like, the trapdoor and later scenes that like you realize that actually she's just willing to follow the instincts behind what she believes to be the right thing 
regardless of whether it breaks rules or not. So I think that she becomes way more likable as this book goes on from, from where she started. Yeah, I think Harry and Ron, um, for all their wrongs, can become or do act as quite a good influence on her um, mm. over the course of the book. Were you surprised by the fact that she wasn't sort of there as part of the clique from the very beginning? And it actually takes quite a while before they acknowledge that um, they really are kind of all in it together as the three of them. I'd say it's really late. Like, I feel like it's it's like the hug that takes place, I think, is it at the tra- probably at the trap door. And it, unless well, there's the moment is version. when they save her from the troll is when the, they basically yeah. close friends, which she sort of tells a lie that she doesn't really need to because she claims that she goes... Yeah, the story doesn't add up here, does it? But A lot of people have a lot of issue with that. I know I've, sort of, I've seen it explained fairly well before. Um, but ultimately, it's that lie or what she says there that means that they have to be friends because she, mm. she she basically goes against all her better principles of you know never lying to teachers and tells them that and then from that moment she sort of chose them over mm. over her principles so it kind of needs to happen i think um useful friend to have knocking about as well isn't she knows everything gets you out of a hole i think yeah um, useful in book one and then device. that becomes just yeah. like imperative by later books <laughs> yeah um, jk uh, jk's really given them a get out of jail or free card there hasn't she <laughs> yeah i just wanted to touch as well on um her muggle-born status which she's the smartest kid that's quite clear but yet she's not from a wizarding family mm. what do you make of that i don't know if i I don't know what I think about the idea of her not being muggle-born, but I think... No, being muggle-born. She's muggle-born. Sorry, being muggle-born. There's a family theme that is obviously going to be at play, and, like, I don't want to leap too far ahead, but that that also, in my mind, is going to involve Harry, Voldemort, Snape. Somewhere in this, this idea of family and bloodline is of some sort of significance. Who have we got yeah. coming up? Say, yeah, interest is Snape. Snapey, the big yeah, the guy himself. Um, so did you picture Rickman as you were reading this one? Was he there? All the way in your head? Yeah. Um, no, it's a it's obviously a um a bit of a misleading introduction to Snape, isn't it? Because we get the Harry sat um isn't your brand new Gryffindor table, and his eyes sort of flick past the back of Quirrell's um, turban straight into Snape's eyes, and then. Um, the scar starts hurting. There's a couple of little clues she gives us like that, isn't there? Because when mm. uh, Hermione's putting out um, the f- the incantation, sorry, when she's doing the incantation that she thinks Snape's muttering, she uh, basically breaks the contact by knocking over Professor Quirrell. And there's a little clue there. I, I mean, I'm not even sure you would remember that now, but there's like this little line which basically says that. And again, you would only see that on a reread. That's, mm. that's just sort of like the basic levels of um, a mystery book, right? Where there's these little clues that you have to, to give out. Mm. Yeah, and she does it so well that when you read back, it just it all makes sense, doesn't it? Completely. Um, yeah. But yeah, what do you think, Steve? From minute one, we're meant to um, think of this guy as uh, evil, someone that Harry's going to obviously have a lot of friction with. Um, how do you think his introduction kind of sets him up for the person that we've seen him become so far? So I think the introduction sets him up for everything that follows but I also don't buy the conclusion of this book either so I don't now sit and think oh like he was actually just trying to protect all along like he may have been trying to protect in this instance but the idea that he is actually all along actually good and we were misled 
I'm definitely not having that. Like, I don't, like, I honestly don't think I think that differently about Snape now than I did in chapter 14, where I thought this person is inherently bad. So I don't surely... Okay, uh, I just wanted to ask them when you think, mm. it was, you, you were sold that it was him, basically, that was going to steal the Philosopher's Stone. In your mind, you knew that Snape was a big character in this series. We're going to see more of him. Did you kind of almost just think, well, like, he's just going straight into full-on evil from the rest of it we're just going to think he is basically the main one of the main antagonists from now on was that where you were headed prepared for basically yeah that's what i was prepared for but i'm sort of still there like i don't know if the mm. conclusion of this book has changed my feeling on that like and that, that's just based upon like his interactions because yes like whilst i buy the fact that perhaps like um you know the quidditch piece is true and that he is trying to save harry and it's quirrell who's trying to bring him down like fine and there are like other instances where like you could rewrite to show that he was trying to protect harry but there's still far too many links with regards to the feeling of the scar the link to slytherin um the interest in harry as well mm-hmm. that to me is like there's no way that it's like okay well this is just completely normal and above board there's something about the relationship with harry which is deeply deeply complex i think it's quite hard to say like if that's in if that's inherently bad because he's evil or it's just bad because of like history or what has led to this point but somehow like he is a big player and he i don't believe is like a fully noble player in this game uh, as a result of this conclusion to this book i think that's right i don't think we've had any kind of resolution yet and more questions have been asked than have been answered there's definitely like a link with harry's past which is obvious because they talk about obviously his relationship with his dad right um the fact that he's on the lookout for harry whether you perceive that to be that he's trying to look after him or he's trying to um fuck him over like one way or the other there's something deep in the relationship between the two of them um we'll just talk about Quirrell briefly as well you know he doesn't actually get other than being the main antagonist eventually we don't know that throughout the book so he's sort of more of a background figure really did you ever suspect him at any point no honestly I didn't but I I would say like and maybe I'm just too cynical but like I would say my conclusion of the book as well is that um I wonder if there's an element of smokescreen to, to the Quirrell piece. Like, I'm not saying that I think, oh, like, he's been stitched up or, like, he wasn't intended to be the bad guy. Like, I'm, I'm sure he might have been, but I don't think this is really about Quirrell. Like, I feel like he will become... I don't think this is the start of a subplot, which is where Quirrell actually is the bad person in Harry Potter. Like, I didn't really feel that, to be honest. So I don't know whether he's being used as a smokescreen or if he's a pawn for some other like far grander evil being who are just using him for for mm. their devices which is kind of is the case with Voldemort obviously at the end yeah. of the book um but I didn't really like read too much into that involvement of Quirrell at the end and like I'm not sure that I put this much onus on him as a character at this point yeah just a bit of a vehicle really that's been used so far I mean I don't have many notes on him I just wrote pathetic bloke it's all yeah, absolutely pathetic <laughs> bit of a yeah. wet wipe Right, well, that was sort of the main characters throughout the plot. Um, do you want to do your quickfire takes? But um, so most of those are quite, kind of quite amusing. So let's just talk about a few other interesting plot points. 
let's talk about Quidditch. <laughs> it's sort of away from the main plot of, um, you know, the, the the quest for to find who's trying to steal the philosopher's stone, but it's still it's still pretty integral to to our to our heroes to Harry because Harry is ridiculously talented at the sport, as we find out. Were you expecting that? He's basically the LeBron James of Quidditch. Yeah, he's unreal. Um, I think I expected there to be more struggle in Harry's greatness. I think I said this in maybe one of the voice notes. Um, So, like, I was never in doubt that, like, of course Harry will become or exhibit times of being the almighty because, like, he's clearly very blessed. But I think I was surprised to the extent that, like, it is literally, like, he is the best at everything. Like, everything that exists, like, he is, like, the best at it. And so even with, like, Quidditch, like, I kind of anticipated that, like, he'd have to learn it, get better. But, like, no, he's just plucked from day one as being the best was a bit of a surprise. I really liked the Quidditch element. And I think that, like, this is where I need to be quite honest and I'm not proud to say, but, like, as someone who's not watched Harry Potter... Quidditch is quite an easy stick to bash it with I think particularly because like you've seen like people play it on like the school field or like at uni and the biggest thing that I felt from reading the book good game like that was like the the, like one of the biggest things that I felt like I'd been so cynical about like oh Quidditch but it would look good over the park if people could fly wouldn't it like that would be cool so this was a really good game like more simple than I was probably thinking it was going to be as well lots going on like the bludgers they're called right yeah 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 Peter's hit the bludgers yeah got a few Quidditch questions for you actually yeah oh yeah but like, like wild, like scene, loads going on in the game of Quidditch. So I, my, my conclusion was actually like, oh, really great game as well, to be honest. I've got to get your view on the um, scoring system <laughs> of Quidditch. <laughs> now, what do you think about the fact that you can pick up 10 points, 10 points, 10 points, 150 to win the game? What, so that Golden Stitch just beats all, basically, yeah. doesn't it? It's very yeah. rare that it does last, last goal wins, basically. Yeah, yeah, it is. The game, isn't it? <laughs> It is a bit golden goal, I think yeah. that the game would be way better if that was like a, you know, maybe a, a 60 points or even 100, but like 150 is just... But then haven't games points. lasted like three months? So at that point, like, you could argue that... But uh, that scoring system works a bit better. Yeah, that's It's true. just that Harry gets it after 10 minutes <laughs> yeah. every time. So he he has ruined the game. You saying Bolt's turned up, Kato. Yeah. Uh, they're a good side, the whole Gryffindor team, aren't they? Iconic, that era. <laughs> um, is the dream, right? <laughs> um, is Harry going in your fantasy team? That's my question. Straight in. Without doubt, straight in. I think he's worth every penny, isn't he? Although he always <laughs> picks up an injury at some point. <laughs> <isn't> he? <laughs> yeah, he does. Misses a lot of games, yeah. Yeah, and if you're picking a team with no if there's no sub throughout the season, you're like the sun or something like that, yeah. It's <laughs> so interesting, JK Rowling said that she <laughs> didn't enjoy after writing basically the first Quidditch match. She got bored of writing it. She hates sport. Um, and she kind of wrote it as a bit of an ironic thing as well and and basically didn't want to ever write it. There's lots of examples as we go through the series where she neglects to write about it and makes other things happen because mm. one of... She said, um, she said that it's what a lot of societies would like focus around and centre around, isn't it? Like a sport mm. um, that mm. everyone can kind of follow and you've got your superstars that kind of come with it. And so it felt natural to build it into the world. And they do love it. They they go nuts. Like every, all, all the houses, everyone goes and watches a game. 
they mm. build up to it. It's a very American kind of sports system. So that was Quidditch, which I love. Um, the invisibility cloak is quite mm. uh, an interesting gift to receive. It was, it was the message given to him was that it was his father's. This is something that Ron is pretty amazed by. Ron comes from a wizarding family. What did you sort of interpret that to mean, and what did you make of, of the cloak? First thing I made of it is how you get over three people in the dragon. That was one of the things that I was really struggling to work out as we went. Um, Wait till they're two, two people in a dragon, isn't it? Oh, is it two? I think so. Yeah, I think it's two of them make it to I'm the I'm thinking top. of all three of them taking them up there, but definitely, no, maybe not. Definitely times where all three of them take it. But yeah. So that was one of my take-outs of it. Yeah, like there is definitely the curiosity of the fact that they're all pretty fascinated by it. Um and they're all from Wizard World. Like that, that is that definitely does um strike a little bit. Um, and obviously the fact that it appears to have come from Dumbledore as well feels really significant in the sense that like it's obviously something grand and it's obviously been given as like a, a private exchange, and he's obviously been chosen to be the recipient of it, probably for certain reasons so like i think that that definitely also builds on this out uh, harry and dumbledore narrative as well that like it's probably more than just that like he's being noble and good like he's quite specifically being quite pointed towards this one child as well he does write out of gifts in the mail doesn't he because he gets his nimbus 2000 uh mm. from, from professor mcgonagall and an invisibility cloak from dumbledore so <laughs> He pretty much gets two like extraordinary magical gifts mm. in his first year given to him by teachers. So And they all like it's interesting, maybe I've just taken this a bit as red, but like they all obviously recognize his powers so early. Or they, like as he enters the school. It's not like there's any it feels like there's not much there's so no. When discovery. you say powers though, do you mean all encompassing? Because you know, we know that Hermione's brighter than him. She's smarter than him in every lesson. Mm. I think that they're intangible at this point of the book. And I think that that's related again, and I'm a bit broken record, but this idea of history and bloodline. And so I don't think that Harry needs to show his powers for people to believe them in the way that Hermione does. Hermione's so impressive by the things that she does, whereas there's just an assumed greatness with, with Harry, isn't there? And I think, yeah, I can understand what you mean because Harry's the one that ultimately faces Voldemort, right? It's his nobility, it's his bravery that takes him to that point. We see that when he's the last person to face, he's the person that faces Voldemort, not Hermione, who mm. demonstrates incredible brain power with the potions uh, conundrum. Yeah, I think the book sets out so much stall by this idea of there's so much more than just book smart, isn't there? That and Hermione about. says that to him herself. Let's just run through a couple of other quick things. Um, the Mirror of Erised, which we touched on. Um, yeah, this is rolling sort of flexing a little bit, showing her her creative juice spark, whatever. I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is here. But she puts in this incredible magical object and then it and then it reoccurs again at the end. It's it's like it's beautifully sort of crafted into the story. Yeah, I really love this part of the story. Like, I think that, um, yeah, it's definitely, as you said, like, it's a, a real stretching of, 
what was is already a very uh, like diversely creative world it's like a real at the at the hard end of that isn't it i think it's like the the yeah. different perspectives that different characters also take from it um i think there might be some more to come like on that as well yeah i really love like i love the i love the whole like uh, I don't know, like the symbolism of this. I felt like this was quite vivid in my memory as well. Uh, as well, um, when I like reflect on the book, like it was just a, a really, um, yeah, like a part of the narrative that I really enjoyed. And especially with it coming back at the end, and the idea that it, it has been placed as almost like a source of truth or like a source of good, mm. I think is quite an interesting. Um, which we've got like a flavour of, but I would suggest there's probably again more to come on that. I think there's just this sense that Roland puts her deepest magic is all in, entangled really in the reality of human feeling, really. This thing is just the desires of your heart. There's no fantasy element, really. This is true to what humans also can feel and believe. But yet this is one of the deepest um, brands of magic. Mm. I think we see that more in this series as well, which is, again, again, what makes it so relatable. I think that theme um, came through so often when I was reading the book, which was, as you've said, um, really, like, the magic being a vehicle to make sort of a greater point about the difference between good and bad and the difference between people's intentions and that that thematically, like... um, kind of runs through everything really like honestly there's so many examples of that isn't there and like this is a really great one but I do find I found myself like constantly feeling like I was monitoring you know the intentions of every character at all times throughout the whole process yeah no I think it's a um quite an important sort of parts or a meaningful part of the story where when he finds the mirror it's the first time that like there's this there's not this just upward trajectory of him enjoying himself and learning more and more about um, the whole world. And for the first time, something quite somber kind of comes in, doesn't it? After he's um, just really excited about this world that he's sort of been put into. And obviously he starts from quite a low place, like the lowest of bases with the Dursleys and um, orphan no family. But he finds this world that like really, really accepts him. And it's almost like this uh, crashing back down to earth and um, bring him back yeah bring him back to reality really yeah I think that point mm. is made isn't it that he's so uh, then becomes so detached they, he was so excited to find out about um, the Philosopher's Stone and Nicholas Flamel and it was on that point where they were searching the restricted section and then suddenly the minute that he finds the mirror of error said that all goes out the window and I think she makes there's a line about that basically he just suddenly starts coming to visit this mirror every night um, and we see Dumbledore's involvement in that, and he kind of gives him a warning, and Harry heeds the warning, to be fair, so he does listen to Dumbledore, despite the fact that his heart was clearly telling him another thing. Okay, let's move on quickly to the meeting with the centaurs, um, right towards the end. It, it, it was this, this was obviously quite a significant part of the your voice note, I remember as well, you were kind of mentioning this. Strange old, strange old yoffs. They were like the the, the uh, creation of like one of my favourite, and I mean I quite liked all of them, but like just I couldn't move past the idea of like the idea of Ronan, half bloke, half horse, who's roaming around the woods tracking the moon. Like 
it was I, it was probably I don't know maybe I'll regret saying this because there's a lot of examples but like it felt like a moment where like the fantasy element was being stretched um I so think suddenly like, really we're really I find a I kind of think the forest is a bit like that where you really are as far away from like Privet Drive as you, as you can possibly yeah. like contrast Privet and like Drive I think that a bit of like this the centaurs are like the the cynics um going in view of Harry Potter and then you're like <laughs> there it is you get to like chapter number 15 and there's the bloke who's half a horse who's looking at the moon and it's like oh yeah I knew this was coming at some point you've been reading me in by making it seem like it's real life and then uh um I thought that they were uh, interesting, like, um, yeah, like, I feel like so many of the things that I, I don't want to sound fence city here, but like, they're obviously also talking about like the idea of like destiny and like, mm. um, that maybe like whatever is constructed here is a result of something that has either like happened or gone before or is already like predefined. And like, I don't want to sound fancy, but it's like, I just don't know because I've only read the first one. And so I, all I can do is like cling on to like the signs of this, but without again, like being like a broken record, like bloodline, families, moons are like driving the reality that is now <laughs> present. The wig, um, the glasses, the catchphrase, brilliant. <laughs> bloodline. So like, and they sort of articulate that obviously a lot. So. I thought they were quite a fascinating build. I'm, I've, I was also reading it, just thinking, I really want to watch the film at this point. Like, this was an, an element where I was like quite fascinated to see how this element has been brought to life. Like, all the others, I was quite comfortable with, but I thought this seemed a bit um, wild. Well, I wouldn't get too excited. I don't remember that being particularly striking. It was that film set of the Forbidden Forest with the, uh, with the centaurs. I mean, it's all right, I suppose, but yeah. Mm one that I would uh, recommend. We only get um, one of the centers, don't we, in the film, I think? For Ed, there's no Bane. Uh, not, yeah, no Bane, no oh, Ronan. No. Sorry, mate, your best mate's not in there. No Ronan, gutted. Yeah, exactly. Okay, the next thing then is the sorting hat, which you mentioned in your voice notes was a bit like, um, like the FA Cup draw, did you say? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Did you say that? Maybe I've made that up. Yeah, um, I think I did. <laughs> But, well, yeah, I feel like I've got, I've written something somewhere about this. Maybe I can So what did um, you expect going in with the Sorting Hat? Did you expect, you knew about the houses at this point, yeah? And obviously the hat sings about them. So did you have an expectation of where Harry was going to end up? Could you see what was coming? Um, did you ever think that there would be this struggle for him of, uh, wherever he ends up now sort of defines him he, and he's realised this and he's going to have to almost make a decision at the same mm. time. So, well, I think I knew that Harry was Gryffindor before the I started reading the book. So, like, I think, like, I was aware that Harry would be Gryffindor and Draco would be Slytherin. So none of the outcomes were surprising to me, but I was probably surprised by, A, like, the extent of, particularly in Harry's case, of it being very torn which I'm sure is is of, of relevance. And yeah, so what do you make of that relevance then? What, what is your early theory? It could be wildly wrong. We don't mind. Right, uh, you want me to like say... We'd love it to be wrong, don't? actually. Yeah, yeah you would absolutely <laughs> love it. You can tell that I'm so nervous about making a prediction because I'll just be... No, I mean, yeah, look, you wouldn't necessarily vocalise it, but you're on a podcast, so you have to now. 
Come on, mate, Slytherin, uh, Slytherin away, tough place to go. What do you think? <laughs> so I reckon... Hmm. I mean, by the way, we're not saying that there's some great reason either. It could just be quite simple and obvious. No, but like, like I, I'm not trying to make something up. Like, I just don't know if I can define what it is. But there's clearly, like, as I said, like the two pillars of like Gryffindor and what that represents, and Slytherin and what that represents, and Harry's lines between those two pillars. I think are going to be blurred or are blurred for some reason that we will discover later down the line. And whether there is like a family element to that or whether that is that perhaps, you know, like, I don't know if previous Potters were good turned bad or bad turned good, one like like some sort of um, switch like that between the two. Um, but there's clearly like some sort of like link for Harry across both of them. I suppose the question becomes, do we see any of those like known Slytherin traits in Harry in the way that the Gryffindor traits were so overt with him, I think, by the end of the book? Hmm. I don't think I would say that I do see that. Right, let's return to the plot um, because there's a couple of people who sort of tie the story together. One is Voldemort and one is Dumbledore and especially uh, his conversation with Harry about Voldemort in the hospital wing. But we'll, we'll quickly talk about Voldemort. Um, you kind of touched already, didn't expect him to be involved. You didn't necessarily expect him to to, to be, appear in any way. So what did you make of him being this weak um, spirit version and then attached onto a body and then finally, well, we don't even know what's going on, where he's gone to now, but we know that he's not in a great place. Yeah, like, I um, I don't think I expected him to exist as a soul, which is, appears to be the reality. Like, I think if I'm honest, I thought of him as being a, like, an entity in his own right. Um, I think there's an interesting like element with regards to like his desire to sort of return to life, like as a result of like the philosopher's stone as well. And if I was like making some sort of, um, I guess like prediction, I don't know if, like if this is going to be inherently evil from start to finish, or if like his desire to return is necessarily born out of something like truly bad or is it an attempt to kind of um return to some source of prior goodness that existed because that kind of i think gets linked to a little bit with the idea of as i said like him like uh i can't explain though why he wants to take out harry like that piece just feels like that's purely bad but like the idea of him like latching on to other entities to somehow kind of return to true form I don't know if that's in if that's born out of something completely horrendous or or the desperation of the need to become an entity again. Yeah, and I suppose the main question I had on him um, at this stage is that: Do you feel you know what motivates him yet? I suppose um, sort of underpins all of these um, actions that he's taken, trying to gain mm. the philosopher's stone, 
being willing to drink unicorn blood, kind of both of them the same means to an end. But behind it, do we really understand why and what's motivating him and um, what his end goal is, in effect? Not really. But I think this idea of like somehow returning to either what he was or somehow to life is kind of what I see him striving towards, like that he needs those things to be able to do whatever it is that he wants to do. And I think that like the, the dark end of that is that he needs them so that he can then exert his power or perhaps the softer end is that he needs those things so that he can, as I said, like return um, to the to either a human form because perhaps he's driven by something good, but he needs to be in that form in order to um, to to deliver it. I don't know, like um, fully. What and what did you think of his um, so Voldemort's kind of status in the magical world? I mean, at the moment he's not even really a being, but he's still spoken about in hushed tones, isn't he? People not prepared to say his name. What do you think about the standing that he has in people's psyche and people's minds? I feel like his position is that he has wronged everyone. Like, I don't, I think like the, the psyche is that he is, he is portrayed as being inherently evil, like by everybody. Um, I think the question is, is he misun, is that the case or is he misunderstood? Am I right to say that Dumbledore does use his name in the way that Hagrid does and he encourages the use of the name when everyone he does, else ignores he does say it? That. He says that to Harry uh, in the hospital wing. Yeah. Uh, fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself, which uh, is a line that is then used by Hermione in the films, which is just baffling, just mm. truly baffling. But we'll, yeah, we'll come to that on another podcast. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's quite an important detail, really. And Harry used that, um, being told that, then calls him Voldemort. So it must be so hard for you to talk. This is definitely linked to how I was talking at the start of this pod. Like, question around Voldemort is so difficult because the door is now open to me. And so I'm like almost a little bit more clueless than I was because now, like, there's a, there's a lot of like potential themes, but like realistically, it's quite hard to like piece them into something which makes me feel, I think the great thing about that is it just makes me feel really keen to just crack on so that I can start to uncover that further. But like, I'm in a little bit of like a position of angst at the moment where I'm a bit like, ah, like there's loads of different routes. And I feel like when I'm talking to you, like you also are like, I feel like I should get closer to them, but then like, I I don't think I have enough to really go out on a limb with any of that stuff yet Mm. from what I've read. Anyway, I just touched on the Dumbledore and Harry hospital wing chat. Um, and that is really significant because we basically, at the very um, start of that chat, Harry asks him if he can answer any of his questions. Um, the very first question that he asks him, Dumbledore tells him that he can't answer it. Um, he basically said, Voldemort said he only killed my mother because she tried to stop him from killing me. But why would he want to kill me in the first place? Hmm. At that point, he says, alas, I cannot answer this question, basically. What are your thoughts on that? Why is he not answering him? No, I feel like with Dumbledore, it's less about his desire to like protect Harry and more about his desire to protect like the truth like it comes back to me into this this theme of him being 
he knows or perhaps is the only one who knows what all of these um, driving factors are that have led us to this current conclusion. And so he is pretty non-committal and he is relatively balanced with all of these things. So I definitely don't see it as like what he wouldn't want to say to him because it, it could be difficult for Harry or it might be upsetting. Like that wasn't my take at all. It was more that um, he knows and perhaps it's not wise for other people to know, but perhaps they will over time. It's how I kind of read that. Um, and another thing that they touch on is the reason why Quirrell couldn't touch him, which was love. Um, and we kind of spoke about this being a kid's book before. Mm. And I think this, this conversation is basically about a mother's sacrifice for her child. And, and, and I kind of agreed, like, this is predominantly, a, the start of this series is, is way more childish, but, you know, you have this really deep moment here and these deep themes. And there's actually a quote, Dumbledore now became very interested in a bird out on the windowsill, which gave Harry time to dry his eyes on the sheet. There's depths here. I mean... Mm. Did I think it was a really that? grand, like, final chapter for, like, a multitude of reasons, like this scene, and then obviously the fact that then we also go straight to the Hogwarts concluding, concluding scene, which is also, like, very uplifting as well. But this is, like, really ties together what we said earlier, the really, like, the human element, definitely. Like, there's a far greater narrative with regards to, as you said, like, the depths of love and relationships and, and family um and i think that that crescendo is really nicely in, in the um in in the final chapter yeah right let's quickly do your quickfire takes which we sort of have taken from your chapter reviews and pre-pod the romance between mcgonagall and dumbledore yeah i've given up on that that was a, I think that was a chapter two, uh, sowing the early seeds. But there was nothing that followed that gave me any reason to believe that that would be true. I kind of take the view that Dumbledore is maybe a lone ranger and always has been. Probably about 50 years older than her as well, so that doesn't help. Mm, yeah, also true. See, I've given up on that early theory. Yeah, she is quite old though, isn't she? Because yeah, he's ancient. Yeah, yeah, he is ancient. That's true. Um, next up, then, um, which will be a popular one, Diagon Valley. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Is that? All I can say about that, really. Who's his Zuckerberg, Ollivander over there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I loved. I've said this before, but I loved this part of the book. I feel like this part of the book really took me in. I loved Gringotts. I loved. Do you know, what I really liked about it, like the. Um, the kind of very playful nature of the magic in this part of the book like um even like really small things like the use of like trading cards and like sweets and stuff like i think um i really enjoyed like this immersive level of the fact that it was also very much day-to-day -day life as well but just in a really like with a with a bit of a shine to it and like a magical shine was something that was really easy to get submerged into really, really quickly. I loved everything about Diagon Valley. This um, is where we um, we get Hed uh, Hedwig for the first time as well, isn't it? So yeah. Haven't haven't touched upon her yet, but yeah, very key to Harry um, sort of becoming accustomed to and getting comfortable with the wizarding world in those early chapters. Yeah. And what about Malky Malfoy? 
JK Pfeffer. Was there anyone that came up? You sort of mentioned Goyle might have been a Draco's brother replacement, but didn't see too much of him. Nah, I think maybe like I've got like Phil head from 25 years ago, 20 years ago, of maybe like him with um, Goyle just like stood and I'm thinking they're a bad group and I've made the leap that brother, but nothing, nothing came through that would support that theory. Sadly, Draco's brother's getting put to bed then. Obviously, we're talking about like slightly embarrassing takes or things that I've said. So I was quite keen to not make any more as we were going by. And I got absolutely trolled as well, because when we got to like some of the later chapters, I just wanted to check on pronunciations because I'm like, you've all seen the film. So you are going to have taken the correct pronunciations directly. But obviously, some of them are a little bit um, questionable. So I've Googled like a couple of them so i've looked at the mirror of her eyes firstly and i thought <laughs> i don't know if that's right but i've gone straight to the film scene it's the first youtube thing so i've got erised and i've like written it down phonetically so that when i'm doing the phone note i've remembered it's erised so i'm comfortable with that but the hilarious one which i thought like i'm i'm pretty good on is that's nicholas flamel like that reads flamel it must be said flamel so i google this and the first thing that comes up is how to say the name. And it's an American YouTube video that literally says Nicholas Flamel. And I'm like, right, I've been completely Ooh. trolled. So I'm like, oh, it's Flamel. Then I go and see the film clip just to double check. And then Hermione's saying Flamel. And I'm like, there's this top YouTube uh, video called how to say Nicholas Flamel saying Flamel. And I was very relieved that I didn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I but didn't they call it that. the Sorcerer's Stone, don't they? So... Yeah, got it all wrong. Not getting it right anyway. Well, I would love to you to you to, in future to not check the pronunciations just so we can hear you make a tit of yourself. So yeah, I'm sure right. you would. I mean, Era said I think it would have been fair if I'd got that wrong. Especially when, well, when I remember reading a lot of these as kids, I got like Hermione's name wrong. Um, I, I was I was calling her Hermione, even though there's a, obviously a, a descriptive there's a scene where a uh, character. <laughs> Asked how to pronounce her name, nearly said who it was in uh, in a later book, which J.K. Rowling uses as an opportunity to explain to say mm. uh, how you to, to say her name. But um, yeah, it wasn't until the films came out that I worked it out. So okay, now we come on to some of the world building questions, um, which is all about the world itself. What was your favourite lesson? Um. The one that's most vivid in my mind is definitely potions, but I think that's because there's more to it than just being a lesson in the book, as in it's like, uh, that becomes a vehicle for the plot as well with Snape, doesn't it? I'll be honest, I've kind of forgotten some of the others, though. Defence Against the Dark Arts, although that was taught by Quirrell, so I don't know if you've got much mm. of a flavour for it. Um, Transfiguration, Charms... Um, they're your big ones, aren't they? I yeah, don't know if there's that much coverage of them. History though, of Magic would be there. Of what? Lesson. Yeah, I can't remember reading. I know they were going to lessons, but I don't remember yeah. really like. I do think that that's possibly a thing, isn't it? In the book one, you don't quite get loads of depth on the lessons. They, there's plenty more to come. What was your view on um, the whole world? You touched upon it a little bit there with Diagon Valley and um, mm. some of the like things like trading cards. They um, seem to get all the collectible cards and um, yeah, all the elements that kind of come with that. My view on it was always that it seems like a really 
ye old world and um, it's almost like view of witches and wizards that we'd have had. So I think witch has been quite a like non-progressive word and the idea of like cauldrons and pointy hats and it's kind of all in there, but it's not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't kind of denigrate it or point it out to be a, I associate that with like bad, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's not that at all, is it? Witch and wizard is of like an equal standing, but in my head, a witch is a bad thing. A wizard is a good thing. Yeah, I would massively agree with that. That's how I saw it um, in my head, like ye olde as well. Like definitely like big stone buildings is like what I am. Um, yeah, like definitions of those terms was kind of how I read it. Like I loved like the, just the depth of the world. And like I feel like there's just so many more, like there's, there's so many more things to explore there, but definitely the playful side of it. Like I have to say that, like I think that, again like it's easy for me now to say like oh like those things are really nice but i think my preconception was that like the use of um wizardry or magic would be more advanced maybe or like darker like somewhat darker versus like the idea of like a changing flavored sweet or like a different uh, like a changing faced trading card is like just a really fun variation of things that actually exist like in muggle world and like i loved all of those parts all those little nuances that um yeah like i, I really loved love those elements mm. um yeah there's so much more world building to come and i think one of the great things about it is that she built a world and not all of it even goes into the books. So there's so much more details to come on like websites. She's got Pottermore and she written, she sort of has been asked so many questions about the characters and what came before them. And so there's so much more in this universe outside of these books. Um, yeah. It's going to take me so long. This is like the other thing that I realized, like to get to that level of that immersion, yeah. there's a long way to go. Well, there's, yeah, there's a few other good podcasts out there that will give you all that. Um, so, again, was it surprising to see him, you know, never wane at all? Like, he, the glory of Slytherin, which was sort of suggested to him, was never something that he was tempted by at all, was it? He was always this strong, loyal Gryffindor. And uh, Yeah. Um, something we haven't touched upon yet. And uh, I don't know what order we should have touched upon this, but just all of the um, like challenges they went through in order to get to Harry being in front of Quirrell right at the end. So obviously they go through the trap door, don't they? Past Fluffy, um, yeah. through the Devil's Snare, through the room with like the flying keys, the potions, Wizard's Chest. We haven't touched upon any of this yet. Did you enjoy like the actual? Because that's like a lot of magic really come to life as well, isn't there? In those sort of couple of chapters and the challenges that they have to kind of overcome as really underage wizards in effect yeah. as 11 year olds 12 year olds you remember playing it on the playstation when it's the last level <laughs> yeah it really felt like that it did feel very video gamey or like a really magical version of the crystal maze like something like that um i really like that whole scene i think was just so gripping though to be honest so for like a first read um, I'm not even sure that like first read I was like reflecting on the sort of magic that was taking place because I think you're so at that moment like waiting to see if they make it through the other side or like what is coming next or how they yeah, overcome. You're almost waiting to get to, to Quirrell at that point. Well, Snake. Yeah, yeah, I think you're yeah. really urging urging it forward at that point and like you're you're 
you're also like one you're wanting to like immerse in the barriers and how they're overcoming them but also like get them out of the way as well like i remember feeling like i want to know where this concludes so that was just a just a completely gripping part of the um of the plot for sure mm. um well that sort of takes us into the conclusions where we can talk about harry a bit more um one of the things we already talked about was um his noble, his nobility and his power, which you're kind of surprised by. Um, so another thing in the in the pre-pod that you mentioned was that his powers might be a burden and he'd kind of have to learn how to handle them. I don't think his personality wanes. I think my, when I, my preconception with regards to the strength of his powers, um, Maybe there was a small element of me which was wondering, is he going to misuse them? But I actually think it was more born out of, is he not going to be able to control them or manage them? And I really actually thought that was going to be more of a common theme early doors. Like, even in, like, the snake scene, like, um, with the Dursleys right at the start, where there feels like there's an element of a slight lack of control of his powers at that point. And I think that, like, I was really feeling that that theme was going to become more and more where actually he wasn't so much in control of these powers and they were creating challenges because of that. But I actually think that, that doesn't really hold so true. And really, he is pretty refined in terms of as and when he does use those powers. My perception of him as a character at this point is definitely nev never waning against principle um, and, you know, being um lured into anything other than what he believes to be the right thing at this at this stage one of your negative uh, preconceptions or fears was that the early part of the series was a children's book and wouldn't grip you is that has that been the case at all do you think that it was still written as a children's book and to what extent yeah i think i like i think a bit of both on this it was definitely gripping so that there definitely wasn't an element of me which was like this is too slow um i think that that depends a little bit on how much you want it to be as well and like i really tried to remain open-minded to it and i think that the, honestly the pace is is pretty quick certainly in the latter half of the book and i'm sure it'll get quicker having said that i'm pretty sure and i may be a bit influenced by what you've said but that I probably will reflect and think it is more of a kid's book than the others. Because I think you mentioned this before and I can kind of already see it. Like you have to just do establishing, don't you, of some description. And like that in itself probably leans to being a bit more kind of um, basic, if you want to call it that, of kid's book. But I think in this instance, if it's the first time you've read it, I don't think that comes at the sacrifice of it being gripping. Because I think learning the world is quite gripping in itself so you're maybe not being pulled in by you know massive plots and rivalries and fights or whatever it may be that maybe came later but it's quite interesting as i said that like i found even all like the diagon alley place to be really gripping because at that point you're just immersing and, and that's also really i found that really rewarding as well you've got sort of three parts haven't you really of like world setting character introduction then rattling through the like actual plot at the end almost um yeah there's not really a lot of time to sort of stop and take a breath all right well let's get your closing thoughts then on the series ahead really where do you think 
the the knowledge you're armed with now, where do you expect this to go? One, mm. I'll just mention that you did predict a lot of fighting in your pre-pod. Um, I mean, you could argue that we got some fighting in this one. There was certainly a, a head-to-head. Harry nearly died. Quirrell did die. There was meant to be a duel. That never happened, did it? Draco <laughs> never turned <laughs> out. But we've had a death of a teacher already, so... I actually think there was probably more in this book than I expected. Like, again, I feel like fighting was something I maybe saw as being a bit of a crescendo. So, like, I think, and by that, I mean, like, in a far, far further down, I still thought that probably this book would be Welcome to Hogwarts, really, like, would be the conclusion. So, to yeah, to have, like, a dead teacher is, you know, a decent amount of fighting early doors, but definitely more to come because... There's too many like seeds sown of rivalry at this point. And even though we are, can't necessarily define how those rivalries will manifest and even necessarily who is against who, there's just too many agendas. Like there's too many people right now who have got an agenda for some reason or another that may not be defined. But across like Snape, Voldemort, Quirrell, Harry, um, they're all fighting for something which can only lead to later order of the phoenix is going to be a bloodbath i reckon by the time we get to that i reckon it's gonna i reckon it'll go on heat very soon uh great all right well look forward to it you're obviously very excited to get into book two um so we'll we'll let you go and do that and then me and dom are gonna have a little chat and discuss some of the things you might have just touched on there that some of our listeners might have been screaming out uh, of their podcast device because you know you said some interesting things without even knowing it probably so we're going to you know about- what i've realized i can't listen to this podcast until i finish all the books can i no I that know. is true well you certainly i might put a little spoiler warning in there but um for you mainly <laughs> don't listen don't listen to this section you can only listen to the bits that you're involved in Surely no one who's not listened to Harry Potter is going to listen to this either. Yeah, so uh, the spoilers are exclusively for me at this point. Great. I mean, there might be the odd person that does the read-along with you. Depends how big it gets, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm so excited to do the rest, though. Um, and, like, you might... I don't know if it's come through, like, maybe in some of this, like, analysis, but, like, I'm a little bit... Like, I feel unsettled as a result of reading the first book, which is a really unexpected feeling. I didn't expect that I would be like, well, now I'm the expert of Harry Potter. But now I'm just like, I have... There's so many things, like... And I want to be able to be like, I think this is going to happen or that's going to happen. But, like, there's too much going on. There's too many layers and there's too many potential routes that, like, that's... um, Even though that's strange to feel unsettled, it's great because it means I'm so inclined to now just crack on and start to uncover more of those. And I think I'll listen back to this, by the way, having done them all and be embarrassed, probably, or like <laughs> mortified by like some of these early takes. Well, I, I don't know. I don't think you've stuck your neck out on the line too much yet, but, um, you know, feel free to say something mental and we'll laugh. Great. Well, coming up next, me and Dom will be talking and discussing exactly what Steve said. <laughs> Well, that was that was an interesting uh, listen. Lots to talk about there, Dom. Lots to discuss. Um, I think like we should just kind of go through in order what the kind of stuff that he talked about. I think we talk about the Dursleys. 
I um, think um, one thing that I think uh, he obviously like hasn't yet picked up on though is that they're going to be there kind of at the beginning of every book and it's a recurring thing and you touched upon the fact that it's the, one of the only chapters we get not from Harry's point of view and that's not the case at the start of future books when he's at the Dursleys but they are there as a constant for one or two chapters they're in they're out but they're yeah. always this like grounding um, point to Harry's life that he hasn't yet quite picked up on in the flow of how each book is going to start and um, that we which, always return to this which is obviously really important it comes on to the fact that he returns home if you like yeah. in inverted commas um, yeah so the book matches the reality of what is going on and what he has to do because to to keep the charm in place which is the protection of his mother's love is because he returns home to his mother's sister um so yeah we it mimics that doesn't it just this constant like you say in and out um interestingly when we were talking about McGonagall and Dumbledore he talked about Dumbledore being all-knowing and I sort of read him out um what the questions McGonagall was asking and he seemed to suggest that um Dumbledore was maybe holding back you know some of the truth that he was all-knowing which he was pretty much bang on because Dumbledore at this point is we know that he's manipulating the truth. He's not telling McGonagall all the details because basically he knows what all that information means and he's not going to tell McGonagall, he's not going to tell anyone. He's keeping his cards close to the chest and Steve got that right. I agree, yeah. It was one of the perceptions. Well, actually, I think many of the his sort of perceptive um, thoughts around the whole book were spot on. It's going to be impossible to be correct. But this is one of the big ones, isn't it, where we're all kept guessing of what Dumbledore's got going on right to the very end. Yet the big question is always there um, around should we trust him are we right to trust him um, and obviously like there's a um, bit of a journey that Harry goes on in terms of in the, throughout the early books yes I think it's very clear trust him and as we get towards the end we know that we begin to question that trust and at the very end obviously mm. um, all is revealed and uh, yes we know Dumbledore has been seeing the bigger picture the whole way through and we were right to trust him but um, yeah no I think it's um, I think it's important that people sort of get that sense of Dumbledore early on and so it's good that Steve has very quickly picked up on the fact that um, this is the guy that we're we know has got sort of a bigger plan amongst all of it and is withholding things and is going to be Harry's um, in his head kind of his first go-to well maybe that relationship hasn't formed fully yet but it's going to become Harry's kind of go-to whenever he needs questions answered. And it's interesting he sort of said Dumbledore wasn't necessarily tribal like he didn't have an attachment or the same level of attachment to, to either side. He would maybe let things play out. And I think there's an element of truth to that. Like, he gives Harry choice. Mm -hmm. He always knows what Harry's choice will be, ultimately, because he knows Harry so well. But he does give Harry choice. Um, so again, he gives it, everyone else second chances, which is yeah. famous for. So it is true. Yeah. yeah. And he gives, basically, the same chances to... Well, he keeps a close eye on Tom Riddle, but he... He does give Tom Riddle a, a second chance, and Harry does too. In Tom Riddle, look at you putting him down. <laughs> <laughs> as as Harry will go on to call him, and it's Harry that asks him in in the end game to uh, to ask for forgiveness, basically to, to show remorse. Sorry. Um, so again, Harry actually interestingly kind of becomes the you know the teacher becoming the master in showing his. If in Steve's phrase, lack of tribalism. Um, yeah, 
then we move on to Malfoy, um, who we predicted he wouldn't hate, and he doesn't hate, which well, I think that's going to change in the next book because of yeah. what I, what we start to see through like his treatment of Hermione and the mudblood and all of that kind of bloodline stuff. Again, you have to just say, like, very um, kind of perceptive in terms of how this is going to evolve and the arc Malfoy is going to take that. Um, obviously, we dislike him at the moment, but it's just a kid that's um, being a bit of a stirrer and um, it's effectively just repeating things that quite clearly he's heard and learned from home. And he's not, um, I don't think it's necessarily someone that we hate as opposed to just someone that is a bit of an irritant and we don't, uh, we don't really like. But yeah, I mean, Steve sort of, put that aside didn't he and said look I get that this is who he is now but I can't help but detach from someone that he thinks is going to be in the future mm. um, and how he connects to that actually something I want to move on to that uh, really strong pillar if you like through Slytherin of all the generations um, that I thought was I couldn't believe it when he said it to be honest yeah he said that word he said the dark pillar which I've just written here like very right <laughs> yeah I've, I've got that spot on yeah <laughs> And that's sort of why he thinks that Malfoy will get progressively darker as it goes on because of that. Mm. And that's so true. Um, although he's not the heir of Slytherin, which is what obviously Voldemort is. But yeah, he does have he does have that family and that bloodline. Steve did talk about bloodline a lot, but I think slightly confused. He, he kind of was talking about it with Harry. Um, I mean, obviously there is an element of being... Um, the descendant of Ignotus Peveril, which and uh, therefore um, inherit inherits the cloak and um, the one of the Deathly Hallows, but that is obviously something that is so far along, and the bloodline stuff really that we see in the books in the early stages is to do with Malfoy and to do with his prejudice against different blood types, and then again with Voldemort and his followers as well. Yeah, I think he's picked up on it as a theme um, quite well. I think it's quite a hard theme not to pick up on, I suppose, at times. And actually with the next book, Chamber of Secrets, it really comes into its own, doesn't it? That kind of um, social divide that is the, the driver of pretty much all decisions between good and evil. Um, uh, yeah, that sort of is there as a constant throughout the whole series. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think it's... Uh, in terms of family, he was sort of getting a little bit crossover in terms of where's the big plot twist in terms of who's ha who is Harry related to, as opposed to it just being a bit of a social divide and construct. construct. Yeah. Right. The next thing that I picked up on, um, there, there was he was talking about empathy with Neville, and I thought that was like his own little foreshadowing, because there's so much greater empathy with Neville to come. Like obviously, when he's in the hospital in St Mungo's in um, Order of the Phoenix, there's mm -hmm. not. A point in the series where someone you couldn't have greater empathy with with a character um so yeah almost it's Steve's own foreshadowing of, of the character of Neville but I'm sure there's he's just a character that you empathize with because you, you ultimately feel sorry for him a lot in the early early books yeah I don't think we're given um too much into what Neville's going to become I know he stands up to them at the end as they're sneaking out um to the trap door um and that feels like a really nice uh sort of tying up of who Neville has grown or how Neville has tried to grow over the first um, book. But I don't think we necessarily get the clues from JK about who he's going to be um, by the end of book seven. And 
the storyline that he sort of takes um, throughout the middle of the series in terms of, yeah, his family at St. Mungo's and uh, how close he was to being to be the chosen one. There was, um, uh, I mentioned to Steve about what Hagrid said and asked him if he trusted it, which is Hagrid um, saying, some to say he died. Codswallop, in my opinion, <laughs> don't know if he had enough human left in him to die. Um, this is ultimately a, a massive Horcrux clue that obviously Steve's not going to spot at this moment, but there's a few of these, isn't there, throughout this book? And we were talking about how rich this book is for all of these little clues and not just clues, just nice little names like Sirius Black and Dead Everywhere, yeah. I mean, I've got a whole list of these. Like the Horcrux clue, um, Talking to Snakes, Chapter 2. That's in there, isn't it? That's um, Yeah. That obviously feels relatively inconsequential because it's about him discovering who he is more than the actual meaning of who he is within that world. It's about connecting yourself to the world as opposed to your relationship, yeah, within the world. I think there's actually a little line she uses where she says, hist. Um, at Ron, which is in the mirror of Eriset exchange when they get a bit ratty with each other because they want to fight over who gets in front of it. You could argue that that, was, that could more have just be um, rather than a Horcrux coup, but someone who, who else hisses Voldemort. It was a moment of Harry's sort of anger and it's not something we expect to see from him. But um, I would say probably not a coincidence though. We shouldn't like yeah. be, uh, we should give the benefit of the doubt, I think, in a yeah. few of those because there's so many examples of where it happens um, mm. that, it, yeah, not quite the coincidence we think it is. But loads of names that um, pop up really early on, like uh, and things that some of them are like central to the plot of Horcruxes that you just mentioned there. But some of them just things that appear in the first book that don't come back for a while. Mrs. Fig knocking around in the first uh, couple Not of chapters. Bees, uh, and Wolfbane in that first potions ep- uh, lesson. Um, yeah. And these are the kind of things I don't want to say around Steve because you don't want to draw attention to it as a potential. Um, no. You don't. Future, future plot even though they're not the critical things you just want to let him discover this sort of stuff on his own and that it was there planted from the beginning the whole mm. way through I, I should have probably made a note on it but there was there's definitely um an ingredient in something in the potions which is a link to lily yes um which i can't, I can't remember what it is but you're yeah right. There, but that exists um, and just a few more little Horcrux clues for ends uh, explaining that surviving on unicorn blood yes. leaves a half-life a cursed life well we know that it is exactly what a Horcrux is it's like a half-life it's a split life more than half seven times seven um, and then they could be anywhere and then also um, a great quote which was to the well-organized mind death is but the great next great adventure um Twin cores. Yep. We've got the scar hurting. They both um, fall into that category as well. At the same time, like the Ollivander scene was really hard to discuss and ask Steve his thoughts on um, without drawing his attention to something imperative and vital through the middle of that. I think. I think you, you just have to let it wash over. I think to a point. Yeah, exactly. You can't go pressing, and I think even just mentioning some of these things could set alarm bells ringing but there's so much that we're talking about that i wouldn't have thought it does too much um we spoke to him about the chat with dumbledore in the hospital wing where dumbledore tells harry he will answer all his questions but won't lie but Mm -hmm. he does lie he flat out lies because he says professor snape couldn't bear being in your father's debt i do believe he worked so hard to protect you this year because he felt that it would make him and your father even and then he could go back to hating your father's memory in peace which there might be some small half-truth, but we know that that's not the reason why he's protecting him. It's because of Lily. So Dumbledore has no issues. Um, he's the all-knowing. He is concealing the truth. And he did say to Harry, I'm not going to lie, but he did. 
you did lie. We have to get all the way to the end of book seven pretty much before we know that that is a lie. Yeah. So we're yeah. a long way. We're a long way from that yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a few more little things then that Steve mentioned. He said Ron's hard to place. I thought that was interesting because we know that the Harry Potter community of readers, Ron is quite a divisive character. Like, I mean, I ultimately do like Ron, but know he's flawed and he's certainly more flawed than, than our other favourites. And I think it's interesting because I would say if we're talking about good and bad books for Ron, Ron, number one's probably one of his best books. So if Steve thinks he's got issues with him now, yeah, you wait till you see him thinking in of your what's book. coming up. Uh, yeah, the Goblet of Fire. He's gonna, Goblet of Fire. That's a bad look. That's a bad look for Ron. Tough look for my guy. Yeah. <laughs> I even think in Azkaban, there's a bad look for Ron when he's um. Yeah, when he's uh, him and Hermione obviously fall out, don't they, over Scabbers and Crookshanks? Yeah. And then we've got the old Lavender Browns to them. Yeah. 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 Book two is probably not the worst look for him. Book two is another good one. You know, he's kind of. But then hard to place, yeah, in terms of uh, how he can react. But in terms of his and Harry's friendship, there's only really the one blip in Goblet of Fire, isn't there? And they're sort of. Um, the loyalty is never kind of questioned throughout, is it, at any point? Just is he like a particularly sensitive guy that's good at dealing with and making sense of the world around him, I suppose? Well, you say that there is a massive blip in Hallows as well, obviously, when he runs off. Oh, the blip. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean... Back. He comes back. He comes back. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah, we got a foreshadowing of that in book four. He does it twice. He does do it twice. Yeah. Um, and Snape... Um, he talks about him being deeply complex. I don't know. It's hard to know how much of this has been informed. Like he can tell, I think what he knows about the casting of someone like Alan Rickman, you know, you, you, it doesn't take a genius to work out that Snape is a complex character and there's a lot going on. Um, I think it's interesting that he's pinned his, um, I feel like you would realize that there's going to be, he's going to be good or evil. I think you, you, you would probably realize that that's a thing. And, he might have overthought it and he's just gone with the he's i think he's going to go through the whole series now i think telling us that he's evil and it's going to be so beautiful at the end when he thinks he's got it and then it comes back at the end oh it's, it's going to be great it's the one thing it's probably the thing that you don't want to spoil for someone isn't it yeah it's the one as much as like you're there biting your tongue trying to give hints and bits of information it's the one thing that you just can't touch you can't risk going anywhere near um and having it spoiled in any way because that is the true like gratification i think that comes from the whole of the series pretty much and i just thought that he might overthink it so much that he accidentally stumbled upon the correct what would correctly happen and but then the, be but the beauty of him is is that you that the point is that you're neither good i only good or only evil surely but exactly you're right you're um, right i know like at the very end there are binary decisions which obviously you have us all place him as a good guy in the end, but does that excuse being a dick for seven years to Harry? Yeah, I'm, not, well, exactly. I'm not sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's certainly got his flaws and uh, it'll be something that we kind of discuss throughout the books as we get further in, but um, we can sort of say that it's a good book for him. He saves Harry's life. Um, yeah, he's up. He's up at this point. He's up right yeah. now. <laughs> you know, save a few... Um, come you back know. to me after Azkaban yeah 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 well exactly does try to get his godfather killed um and nearly succeeds and is quite upset that he doesn't um 
So yeah, and then also uh, just talking about the analysis of of Voldemort. Um, well, one thing I picked up on, two things. One was stunning, actually. One, um, he actually said it's, uh, about Voldemort existing as a soul. And so I think he got very yeah. close to a word, well, the word there, didn't he, about um, obviously souls that are the central um, piece around how Horcruxes uh, exist. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you touched very much upon sort of the non-physical being and part of uh what do you think he exists. meant by that? Because I obviously I didn't really press him, partly probably because I didn't yeah. want to draw attention to the word. But was that? Did he mean that he just didn't think Voldemort would be real, like a person, or do you think? I do think there is the potential that right now he thinks Voldemort wasn't ever like a human being. He was just like an idea. It's like the devil or something, right? That oh, right. Um, is a concept. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but obviously, that wouldn't necessarily tie in with the fact that we know Voldemort tried to kill him as a baby. Um, who no. knows? I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I didn't want to press him after he said the word soul. I thought we've got too close here. Um, the other thing he said, though, is that Voldemort might be misunderstood. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah. So, yeah. not really misunderstood. Nah. nah. Nah, there's some... I was thinking that he was turning into like Dumbledore there or like Harry because I feel like they have they see the good in people, don't they? And he looks a bit like Harry, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he does. Um, but yeah, no, 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 he's going to be. We're good. I think the good thing is that the next book gives us the Dumbledore, uh, gives us the Voldemort history lesson. So yeah. we're already so caught up by book two of like what's what. And um, the houses. I think we spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean to be Slytherin and Gryffindor earlier, um, kind of. And we get the real backstory to that, uh, obviously, when I think in the book it's Professor Bins, isn't it, talks about it, but in the film it's McGonagall, yeah, yeah. Um, about the history of it. And Steve touched upon um, so how did these houses and this system kind of come into being? Is it something that was historical and sort of always there, or is it a construct under sort of Dumbledore's school? Um, and so, yeah, we get those answers, I suppose, um, mm. with it being over a thousand years old and the creation of the school. And more on that in our next podcast, which is obviously all about the Chamber of Secrets, which Steve will be tackling and revealing his thoughts on that. Um, so, Dom, thanks for taking us through um, the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, any any final thoughts for you on book one of, of this wonderful universe? No, just that I enjoyed um, the voice notes that came through. So I'm kind of, a, I'm yeah. set now for the first time he mentions Dobby in a couple of days time. <laughs> Looking forward to a bit of Dobby. Um, right, thanks very much, guys. And um, we'll see you in the Chamber of Secrets.